when you get that call. Had you known the context, the behind the scenes, that unhealthy culture, honestly, do you think you would have made a different decision? I think I, I, think I can say this. Frank Lampard! Lampard! Lampard has found the net! Premier League icon, Chelsea legend! I read that your dad was the biggest influence on your career. And then I read a separate quote saying that sometimes I hated him. You know, my dad was a tough man, pushed me very hard on the football front. And it got probably a bit too much. The fear of failure was a huge driving force, but it made me what I was and gave me the career I got in the end. Chelsea fans will be listening to this because they want to get your opinion on what's just happened. Because since you've left, we've not really heard from you. I came back here because this was an opportunity to come to Chelsea, a club close to my heart. But I could see in training that the level wasn't enough. The size of the squad with players that will test you and question you. Questioning you. Mm. And then Chelsea spends more money than anyone's ever spent in a window. It seemed like chaos. I could see that the players were ready for the season to finish. But low standards are a symptom of something further upstream mm. that's happened. You know, we didn't get the results I wanted. And I know a lot of the reasons why. Like what? So one moment occurred in your life that really tested you at a much deeper level. The passing of your mother. And while you were playing at the very, very highest level. I was a mummy's boy. I lost the closest person to me, you know, everything to me the emotional support. Ugh, I want to say something more, you know, I couldn't. What would you want to say? Frank is a legend. There's absolutely no denying that. But so much has happened in recent times in his life as a manager that unanswered questions remain. And I wanted to have a conversation with Frank, an honest, open conversation to see if we could get to the bottom of some of those unanswered questions. What was happening behind the scenes? How did it actually feel for Frank? Is anyone to blame? What does Frank want to do next? And how and what caused Frank to be the man that he is? And that's maybe the most fascinating question of all. Because there's some things that Frank has just never talked about before. But he's made the decision to talk about them today. And if you have unanswered questions, I don't think you will at the end of this episode. Frank, how are you doing? Really well, thank you. There's always a, there's always a short and a long answer to that, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for your secondary for that. <laughs> what's, the, what's the long version of of that no i'm doing really well i'm um i'm currently uh on a break i suppose from working which is a pleasure in ways because i um, obviously the, the the work as a as a manager uh, i was gonna say premier league manager but any manager in football is intense um so at the moment i'm on a, a break it's sort of holiday time for me a little bit family time um and probably when i'm out of work i learned this when i left chelsea actually um, it was I had a year out after that, and I and I really learned to try to improve my appreciation of when you're out of work. You're fortunate enough to be able to be out of work, whatever that circumstance is. But try and enjoy your family and be very very present. So at the minute, I'm pretty present at home, which is a good thing, hopefully for my children and, and wife. And uh, I'm in a pretty good place. I remember my my brain would often drift off when I had my time out of work. Um, and I would think about things professionally. So I'd think about things that I could be doing or you'd think back to the past. When you're, mm. when you're having those moments where you make, I don't know, your kids are running around and you, you have a moment where your brain drifts off to work, what, mm. is, what are the subjects that your brain starts thinking about professionally? 
you you think a lot in management uh, about people. So if I if I reflect on situations like leaving Chelsea or leaving Everton and those things, there is there are a lot of things that are out of your control. You get to a point where you kind of can get probably seventy percent of them and lock, lock them away and kind of go, I'm, I'm all right with that. You know, results you can't control, but seventy percent you kind of you're okay with, and there's thirty percent that you kind of niggles at you. That's how I am. And a lot of those things when you become manager are maybe sort of like people things. I think there's sort of tactics and all these things are huge in the modern game. And I, uh, I'm certainly a coach. I'm not a manager. But when it comes to managing I don't know, 25, 30 players, uh, managing a building because you are the figure head of a building when you're the head coach or manager, I think sometimes when you're reflecting, you can reflect on things. Did, did I have that? Was that interaction right? Would I have dealt with that right? Could I have dealt with it differently? And hindsight is like the, the best, best thing. You know, it's so simple to sit there with hindsight and think, you know, I should have done that. So I suppose I have moments where I go over things like that, but they're, they're all with a, with a yearning to sort of be a bit better or learn that you might have done something wrong or actually you come to a conclusion, no, I maybe did it right. So, you know, I dip in and out of that stuff. Um, and that probably is, you know, as I say, I, I wouldn't say I'm the only one, but I, I certainly am someone that is, you know, I can never control when those moments come. I can be you now pushing the swing, you know, with, with my kid and then my mind goes back to something or thinks ahead to something. And, you know, that probably means that I'm absolutely invested in what I do. Yeah, I can relate to all of that. And I think any, anybody can. Um, and I also really liked your analogy of once you get to like 50, 70% peace with something, mm. it's kind of resolved as much as you know. Yeah. And then there's other things which feel kind of unresolved, I guess. Or yeah. like there's more wisdom to garner from those experiences. Yeah. Well, I think if you don't get to peace with the 70%, I think you can get yourself in a bit of a mess. You know, I think you can go over everything and correct yourself. And then, and then what is the answer going forward? So I think kind of understanding what you are and then go, no, no, that, that was fine. Whatever the result, for a win or for a loss. I've had games as a, as a coach and as a player where I, 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 we've won a game and I know I got something wrong in the game, but you take the plaudits afterwards, but inside I know I got it wrong. I've had games that we've lost and you get criticism from the outside and I know my prep was right, you know, in my head. So I think those sort of things you can kind of stack up and go, no, well, that's fine. But then there, there's always the 30%. And we'll always strive for, and it might be less. I don't know, 30% sounds a big number when I say it. Sometimes I think it's 10% mm -hmm. to try and make you as good as you can be. So I kind of go over that stuff. Because when you're out of work, when you're not working and you don't know, in football, you don't know what your next gig is, you know, it's very hard to jump too far into the future because everything looks different there. So how can you stack yourself up as good as you can now? I want to get into all of that, but I, I want to take a step back because I think, um, I feel like there's more I need to understand about who you are as a person and your characters and your character and really the the... The, like the foundations you're built upon to understand all of these things, the mm -hmm. things we're going to talk about. So what do I, what do I need to know about Frank Lampard in terms of the influences and the experiences that shaped your character, the character of the man that sat in front of me? Because, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people about you in preparation for this conversation. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, but they all, they all seem to sing from the exact same hymn sheet. They mm. all say, everyone says you're just a, a, a wonderful man like a really good, solid gentleman. <laughs> and it's people don't know this, but we were meant to have this conversation before. Yeah. But you've just been a total class act in even not being able to come last time because of, you know, reasons outside of your control. Um, the way you conduct yourself, you just conduct yourself as a real gentleman. Um, and then in terms of your mentality, when I was reading through your early years, it's clear that there was this real obsession to be better. I mean, Harry mm. said, Harry Redknapp said that you were the, the hardest training, hardest working person he's ever worked with when you're a young man. Tell me, what do I, why is Frank Lampard the way he is? Uh, I grew up in, in Romford in Essex. So um, I would call it probably a, a middle class upbringing in terms of my dad had been a professional footballer. 
Um, and so I went through a pretty um, comfortable upbringing where I was going to school every day, aspiring to do pretty well at school, um, training pretty much every day and playing at the weekends. So after school, we're going to train at Tottenham and Arsenal and West Ham. At one point, I was training at all three. You could in those days. Now it's different. Uh, I was playing cricket. I was playing for Essex as, um, as, a, as a child. So that was on Monday night, having nets at Chelmsford. And then on sun Saturday, I went to school because we went to school on Saturday. So I was devastated with it at the time, <laughs> as we all were. But that was how the school worked. And on Sundays, I played. So my, my week was so busy, but it was content, very content. In terms of relationship of my family, I, I had a, a dad who was pushed me very hard on the football front. Very, very hard. He was quite a hard taskmaster. What does that mean in, in reality? Um, that means that probably when I was, I probably started kicking the ball when I was like four, or maybe as soon as I could walk, but you know, like remembering my early days would be four or five. And then, so that was me in terms of, I loved the football. Um, but probably by the time I was eight or nine, I was probably getting like coached or pushed in in what a 15 or 16 year old might be when they're sort of going into an academy at West Ham, say where I ended up. As in work on your weaknesses, go over the park, you need to have more stamina, your left foot's not good enough, your agility's not good enough. So I was like, used to put down the the, the the cushions in the front room and have me doing reaction, throw a ball against the wall, react and jump. I'm, I'm a kid, I, I, I loved it, don't get me wrong, but there were times when I didn't love it and it got probably a bit too much. I'm not gonna cry about it because it made me what I was and gave me the career I, I got in the end. And then on the other flip of that, so I had that pushy kind of thing. And so after a game on a Sunday, I, we would lose and I would get, he would give me some criticism on the way home and I would be a bit emotional. And fortunately for me, when I think about sort of fate and how things work together to maybe get you to where you got you you end up being my mother was the the flip the emotional support the you know arm around you the, the quiet word I was a mummy's boy and that was completely my upbringing so as I say it was pretty comfortable and in the end it, it led to me leaving school with my GCSEs getting decent grades and then going to sign on as a, a YTS at the time an apprentice at West Ham. I read that the quote about your father, I think it was in The Independent, that your dad was the biggest influence on your career. And then I read a separate quote saying that, I have an awful lot to thank him for, but sometimes I hated him. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I stick by that quote. <laughs> it's, I, I think you'll probably find it um, a lot in stories similar to mine. Um, and in the modern day, I think it's changed because I think parents now, my, my, the, the thing with my story then in a different era was it, it felt pretty organic my dad had played um he saw probably a bit of talent in me and pushed and drove in an old school way i want you to be a player son you know and it was like he sent, i think he found a new sense of pride in pushing me there now i think some parents get excited about all the bright lights that may be and they push their children and i think that's a, another story but i think mine was real you know my dad was a tough man is a tough man and he pushed me and um I remember being over a park and it was raining and it was crossing balls for me to head. Heading's never been a strength of mine then and now, so it never <laughs> throughout my career. And I couldn't, you know, I couldn't connect. I was missing them and he was shouting at me and I remember sort of stomping off and, and being emotional about it. And um, those things stick in my head. And again, they were the building blocks of, of myself as a person. So, you know, I, this isn't a sub story. It's just a reality of what I went through. And, as I said, I had a lot of other comfort, so I, you know, other people don't have it as good. And it was without that, who knows, in a football sense, if I'd have got to where I got. And how does that, um, what relationship does that make you have with your work and progress and self-improvement 
at that very young age? Because you signed at West Ham when you were what, 14 years oldish? Uh, 15, maybe. 15? Yeah, 15. And, and I, and I, I mean, as I said, I read that Harry Redknapp quote that you outworked everybody else. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is your relationship with your work from yeah. that very young age? Well, I, I, I'm sort of um, really interested in this kind of nature versus nurture thing. Mm -hmm. um, what, what was in me already was ingrained in me maybe to be this kind of very work ethic-y kind of person. I think I had, you know, physical capacity. I was a chubby kid, to be fair. I was quite chubby. I did cheeks, curtains, as you had in those days. And I remember, like, I know I needed to get fitter and, um, and get stronger. So, um, and then being pushed by my dad particularly and encouraged by my mum probably gave me this real desire um to and an understanding that if you don't work you're not going to get there and that you know that's what, what I would try and pass on to my children now uh, but it really stuck and it became me so by the time of being you know 16 as I, as I remember it probably been at West Ham my early years I'd probably been forced into a bit by my dad but I took it on board so you know I wanted to get faster so he put me in running spikes and I had to run after training go and run over the back and I used to hide my spikes go out the back so I didn't want the other players to see me because I felt embarrassed um I'd go in on days off um I would practice extra shooting I would do everything I could to to improve and it probably was looking back um a desire to be the best and I was never the best I was probably like the second or third best kid in pretty much every team that I played in in whatever I did, cricket or football. Um, but I had a real desire to, and I also had a fear of failure. And as much as that doesn't sound like a nice driving force, it can be a really strong driving force, I think. Where did that fear of failure come from? I don't know. I don't know. I think it's in my makeup, maybe. I, I don't know. It's probably just how I am. I probably have it still these days. I think it can be really positive. It was in my footballing career, and it, it carried on throughout, probably still in my management career. Um, it can probably be the flip of that in my life because if I fear of failing something, I won't approach it. And I, I, that's me. I don't want that. You know, my wife will always, Christine jokes with me when we go on holiday and you want to paddleboard or something. I'm like, I'm not going near that because I know I'm going to fall off a lot, you know. <laughs> and so she will laugh at me. So I'm like, you paddleboard, I'll lay on the beach or I'll lay on the lilo or something like that. I actually use the paddleboard as a lilo. That's like, my, <laughs> that's the joke. But it, in, in the biggest sense in my life, you know, that fear of failure is, and as a, it can probably maybe make me... Uh, not try things that I should do. But in terms of my footballing career, the fear of failure was a huge driving force. I, and I don't think it's a bad thing because I think there's a certain humility to it. And my mum would certainly have been the driver of me as a young person to stay, stay humble, son, stay humble, never get too high, stay there and you'll be fine in your own head. So I, I think I had a real understanding of my weaknesses and I thought, well, if I can work on these constantly and then I started to see results really step by step. Sometimes you go back, you go forward a few. But I, I can certainly say, looking back at my career from start to finish, I didn't leave anything on the table in terms of work ethic and training. You know, and I don't want to sound like an absolute machine. There'll be days when you get older where you come off it a bit or you, you start to find life affects you in different ways. But I, I, when I look at my peers in football, um, I certainly had a training ethic that at least stood right at the top, whether you know, others can say the same maybe, but I felt that. I mean, that's the, the Harry Redknapp quote. He says that, um, during his career, um, he never met anyone that trained as hard as Frank. He would be out there and on a winter's day practicing shooting for hours, left foot, right foot, et cetera, et cetera. That fear of failure, though, I, I can see how it becomes a driving force and makes you stay out there on a winter's day, left foot, right foot, and mm. leaving no stone unturned. But with all these things, there comes there comes a more a, a cost on the other side of the coin, right? Mm. And you, I mean, you talked about the paddleboard thing, which is that like kind of 
if I don't do it, then I won't fail. But one of the things that I was assuming is it would also make you quite a, a chronic overthinker. Yeah. Because I think people that have that fear of failure, they try and think their way <laughs> through a situation before it happens. Yeah. Typically, what is the cost of being that, having that fear of failure? Um, well, the overthinking thing is maybe a cost. And I think that can be a positive too, but I think it can be quite taxing uh, on yourself, you know, for anyone who thinks like that. And, you know, sometimes I would, I, I've tried to make myself, you know, not an overthinker. However you do that, I don't know, because I've not found a solution to that one because um, I think it's when you are that, um, it's in you. So um, probably the, 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 the negative or downsides have been probably a bit taxing on myself, but I think you learn to live with that too. And I think you understand it. I think it's um, something that I'll never master and um, it can probably cause you into overcomplicating situations like you're saying about, I don't want to get into that, but if you do get into something and you really overthink it and you have to get into something, I now try and step back and simplify it and say, stop overthinking it, simplify it. Because for me, anything in life, if you can simplify the basics, you probably get quicker to the solution. So um, that one's just a struggle that I put up with. But as I say, I think it's just part of my makeup. If I wasn't an overthinker, if I didn't have that sort of obsessive, sort of perfectionist training drive, I wouldn't have got to where I got to because I was not Lionel Messi, who has got this God-given talent that's there. Like Wherever my talent was on the spectrum, I needed to push it. And I constantly try to. How do you enjoy the process if you're overthinking? I weirdly like, I've weirdly grown to like the stress of what it brings. And that's, and that, that's, you might start thinking I'm a strange person. I don't know, but I loved stressful training, you know, to put it on the physical side, for instance, I loved like that feeling of like almost feeling sick on a preseason run or, you know, really intense training sessions. I, I really enjoyed that maybe not always in the moment, but you know, when you get to the end of it and you go, I got through that and that was so intense and hard. And maybe in life, sometimes I set myself challenges and maybe I, I make it more complicated than I should, but I don't mind that stuff. And that's probably when I started off talking about that, like, relax when you're with your children. I think I'm, I'm still um, juggling that one. And, and I think probably a lot of people are, I don't know. I think, you know, being overthinker is not a, something unique to me. It's completely everywhere. Um, but pff, I, don't, I don't know what else to say and that's what I am. That, that, that enjoying the, the pain, like the preseason run, if you feel sick, then you feel good about yourself. Yeah. Why? <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I went to the gym this morning and I really didn't want to go. And I'd walked the dog and my time limit's getting shorter. I thought, I'm going to go and I don't want to go, but I'm going to go in because I know the buzz that I'll get off afterwards. And that's kind of my drug. And it always has been. And, you know, it probably starts from all those early days of, you know, you must work hard, you must push yourself, you must be as fit as you can be. And it probably just stuck. And it's probably a, a bit of a lifer for me. Um, but I do, I do, thankfully, I, 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 I enjoy the stress of hard work and physical hard work less now I've finished. <laughs> you know, now it's more yeah. to not get too unhealthy and unfit. Whereas when I was training and playing, even when I finished playing for a couple of years, if I went for a 5K, I need to beat my 5K PB. I have to try and beat it. Now, when I do a 5K, I'm just going to complete it. Do you know, mm -hmm. and I'm completing it in like 20 or 30 seconds less. So I've, I've dropped that one slightly and maybe I transfer it into other parts of my life, I guess. When you, when you finished your footballing career, you know, there's many options you had. Punditry. I mean, I'm just talking about the typical paths that footballers, sometimes mm. they just go into business. Yeah. Few of them go into coaching and stay in football, but you, you made the decision to stay in football. Mm. Why? And well, was there anything else that was tempting you? Well, I, well, I, I did punditry for a year. So I spent a year mm. working uh, mainly on BT and doing some different things. BBC, I did a few bits. And 
uh, and I really enjoyed it. It was great. I was working a lot with Rio Ferdinand, Stephen Gerrard, um, Jake Humphrey, who had them recently, and just really good people. And and it was like a step in the game and a step I've retired so I can do other stuff. The, you know, the life of a pundit is, you know, much easier than a manager. We all know that. So I kind of put my eggs in both baskets at that point. I did that and I did my coaching badges. And I wanted to kind of see how I felt a little bit. And I didn't want to be a manager in my 20s. When I got to my 30s, I was like, that's interesting. People, managers, you know, what, how, what are they dealing with? I just thought about myself in my 20s more. Um, and then when I finished, I did my coaching badges. I started to quite like it. And then I got an offer out of the blue to go and manage Derby, Derby County. The owner, Mel Morris, kind of went out on a bit of a limb. He was speaking to Harry Redknapp, who's my uncle. Um, Harry said, speak to Frank. We, sp we sat for two hours in Chelsea in a hotel and he offered me the job. And it was like, um, uh, Christian has a saying, and it's like jump and the net will appear. Mm. And we sat in my front room and I was like, you know, I'm doing my coaching badges, but this is a proper job. I go to Derby, they've got some problems and it's gonna be a difficult job or whatever, as all jobs are. Uh, and I jumped. Why? Um, that inner probably drive that I have, that inner desire, I, you know, it wasn't something that I, I am an overthinker. So that probably made that process of those couple of days where I had to make a decision really intense. But at the same time, I, I like a challenge. I love a challenge. And as much as I enjoy punditry, it was, you know, it, it's, it's challenging. You want to do it well and you want to do it like, you know, the top boys do it. You have to put everything into it and do it really well. Um, but I, I was, I wanted more. I wanted to, to get on the grass. I wanted to work with players. I wanted to try and improve players. I wanted to see if I could do it. It's probably more, if I'm honest, probably can I do it and can I, you know, do something. And I was probably naive at the time because the minute I walked into Derby, I was like, wow, this is different. You know, I've got holding, I am now holding the meeting rather than one of the 25 players sitting, listening. Mm -hmm. And as much as you can think, hey, I'll do that. The minute you walk in and you see those 25 faces and then you walk to, to say hello to Jeanette, who's your secretary and this one and the player liaison, I'm like, oh shit, have I, have, I have I got to manage all this as well? And you do, you have to sort of, you know, the building is yours to kind of set the tone. So that first year, some of it was good. You know what, I think sometimes in management, a great manager said to me, me this, he said, and he was old, he's old, he was old. And he said to me, I think I was a better manager when I was young in many, many ways. He said, because when I, as I got older, I started to really sort of overthink things and become a little bit more cynical. And you know, you kind of go over these things. So when I was young, I just make decisions and I was kind of free to do it. Now, I think there's a balance to that. Experience mm -hmm. is obviously a clear, can clearly help as you go along, you learn from mistakes. But I, underst I understood his point when he said that, because I walked into Derby fresh and I made a lot of mistakes because you, you always will. But I also had a, a freshness and a bounce and a feeling inside me that was kind of, like, I want to take this on. And even though those moments of fear, you know, that kind of, when you feel like a bit of imposter syndrome, should I be doing this? And you've got to hide it. Like I remember having the whistle for the first day in front of in the training pitch going, I'm going to blow this at the end of training. And I've been used to hearing about, coach, this sounds so stupid, I've been used to hearing coaches go, Shh, end of the session, stop. I was a bit like, what kind of whistle am I? I didn't want to do like a little, you know? I remember going, you know, like, so let alone like I've got to pick a team and set the tactics and set the tone. I was about all those little things. And I think every, if they're honest, I, I think, you know, people in business yourself yeah, yeah, yeah. have all had those, the most simple things where you're sitting there going, wow, that little basic thing that I didn't consider is now in my head. Yeah. So I had a lot of those and it was, you know, we got to the playoff final, we got to Wembley, we lost a, a final against Aston Villa to get to the Premier League. And I was so disappointed for the club at Derby and the owner who had given me, you know, put everything into me. And we'd had a really good year and got there and, and we lost it. But in terms of um, that first year of management, yeah, my drive took me into it. And it was just a huge learning curve and it was a really enjoyable year.
imposter syndrome that i mean that's somewhat linked to i guess your fear of failure mm. have you how how does we, we talk a lot about imposter syndrome on this podcast because yeah. it's it's a it's a two it's a double-sided thing mm. on one hand you have that feeling of um which i can recall when i became a dragon on dragon's den and i'm sat next to peter jones and deborah meaden mm. peter jones has been there for 21 seasons since the, the beginning Deborah Meaden's been there for 17 and I feel like I've just walked into the TV. Like, yeah. like your little whistle yeah. thing was me like, how do I say I'm out? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly, pitch, you know? exactly, yeah. Um, but be, being at peace with that, like how do you, how have you dealt with that in your career? Because you went from being a pundit to managing a, a club that was trying to get promotion to then Chelsea. Mm. These are huge leaps forward. Yeah. Huge leaps forward. Um, I think uh, I probably managed to get coping mechanisms along the way that have, uh, have put that to the side. And, and, and in simple sense, I've become much more confident in myself. Um, away from work, away from work actually, at home, much more content in myself. Again, it probably comes back to being really settled in a relationship. I am 45 now, just turned. Um, but in the workplace as well, I've, um, that first year I remember feeling it a lot. And when I moved to Chelsea, like it should be a huge move. It's a huge jump to the Champions League club. Mm. Even though I knew the club very well, it was a huge jump to deal with players of a different stature, et cetera. Um, but I found that imposter syndrome thing much less. And I had just had coping mechanisms where I could kind of just go, okay, you, you, you're nervous taking this meeting because you're a bit out of your comfort zone. You've got to be critical of a player. So you, you're going to go in on someone. You're going to show a video of the game the other day. And it's like, that's, that's not a comfortable thing to do always. And I just probably have found mechanisms to be able to go, right, you almost go into the, the character. And I don't want to sound like an actor mm -hmm. too much, but you go, no, I'm just going to go into it. And the more I think you do that, um, the better you can be at coping with that thing. And then you just kind of also have to get a realization that, you know, you can feel a bit like that. You can feel a little bit like, oh, I'm out of my comfort zone. Like, you can make mistakes. I think showing that you can make a mistake in front of a group of players is not the worst thing. You know, they're there to... Like the players will get it. You make the smallest mistake, one of those 25 at least is going to go, what about when he said that? You know. But I think you've got to come to peace with that and you can even joke about that after the event because you'll keep making them. So I'll probably come come to terms with being able to deal with that side of it, I think. I um, I, I was thinking then as you're speaking actually about my experience being a dragon. And when um, one of the things I've always wondered about players when they go from being a player to a manager mm. and especially when they've been managed under a, a legend of a manager. Mm. So like I was thinking about Oli... Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Sir Alex Ferguson. Yeah. How hard is it to like be yourself versus be the successful manager that you saw win? Like, because even when I became a, a dragon, I mm. think for the first two years, for sure, I was trying to be a dragon, yeah. not being Steve. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a journey. But do you understand the question I'm I asking? I completely get it. I get asked it a lot. And I'm not in, the, not in mm. exactly the way you get asked, but I get asked it by football journalists who say, so what did you take out of all your managers yeah. you play and all this stuff? And... You know, just to jump to one would be Jose Mourinho. It's a good one to jump to because he had a huge effect on my career, as many did. But he came and probably elevated me in my playing career to a different level. And what I learned from Jose, and as I then went on to managers after that, was that the, the thing that impressed me about Jose, there was a real authentic nature to him. Like when he was self-confident, overconfident, kind of brash Jose, he, that's him. You know, that was him. And, you know, maybe he's playing up a bit now and again, but I saw him behind the scenes. And then when I've worked with other managers that maybe were probably striving to be something like that, and I think after Jose, there, was a, there were a generation of managers that <laughs> were a bit like, okay, I'm going to wear this, I'm going to wear the scarf and I'm going to tie it like I'm wearing it, you know, or, or act a bit kind of, you know, say those things he used to say, or does say. Um, and I didn't, I didn't buy it as such. 
and even from outside when you're watching managers, you know, you have that impression. So I think probably you go, okay, can I take things from all these managers for my journalist question? Yeah, I did from some and not from others, blah, blah, blah. But when you come to it, you have to be yourself because you'll get found out. And you're, you're probably right. In my early days, I also did that. I did my first meeting at Derby again was like, right, I'm an ex-player. So anyone who wants to knock on my door, come and see me and I'll, you know, I'll tell you the truth and we'll have it out or I'll, you know, I'll give you the answer that you want. And I remember like the first three weeks, they kept knocking on the door. <laughs> I was like, and I was like, I had to do another meeting. So lads, if you're gonna knock on my door, come to me with like facts of why you should play. You know, how's your training? You know, come with something. I don't want you just like, I didn't play on Saturday or like Monday morning. It's like five on the door like, knocking. And you know, open policy in a door is good. But at the same time, it was like, those were like learning curves for me. Like I probably said that, that phrase because I think I needed to say it. Right, yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Because yeah, like, yeah, as a player, yeah. it's a really, it's a really, cool things apply. I want the manager to be able to speak to me all the time. And when I said it, I was like saying what I thought I should say. And then, you know, you learn a little lesson, you know, my door hopefully is still open now, but at the same time I was probably playing the, the part of a manager. Mm. Um, and then you kind of go, now what, what's real to me here? You know, like, do I have to say that? Is there another way of saying it or whatever? And that kind of brings me to a question, which is, w- wouldn't it therefore have been great for you to go and learn those lessons when the stakes weren't so high? Um, because even the stakes are super high at Derby because you're, you're figuring out Frank, the manager there. Yeah. And sometimes you don't want to be at the poker table playing with real money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until yeah. You've learned. But, but that's my life. You know, I, I know what you're saying. And I think as a, as an, as a, I think, I think I can say this. I think as an English ex-player, Steven Gerrard, others that have played at a, at a high level, you know, mm-hmm. played hundred times for our country, et cetera. I think pl- the, 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 the culture in this country is to sort of say, right, now you're a manager, go and earn your stripes there because being a player of that level doesn't mean you're going to be a manager. Mm-hmm. So I think that could have been a route where you can kind of get a lot of play. Oh, fair play, he went down to you know mm-hmm. Division 2 and he's showing what he's doing and there's a process. The, the reality is that path wasn't for me. You know, when Mel, Mel Morris asked me to do the, take the derby job, it was a question. Yeah, challenge. Yes, please, I'll take the challenge. You know, when I had one year there and Chelsea came to me, it was a difficult time, I had a transfer ban. You know, Eden Hazard was leaving. It was a real transition. Young players, what's going to be there next year? I think probably some big managers have turned it down. I know that. So it was like, yeah, you know what? Challenge, I'll take it. So, you know, I don't want to try and recreate the past. I think, why didn't I do that? Because, you know, I've managed in four years of management. I've had some experience. Mm -hmm. And for all the, you know, you'll always get criticism. You know, you leave Chelsea, people will criticise you. You go to Everton, you stay up, you get relegated. People will criticise you. But at the same time, I'm, I am resilient enough to deal with all that stuff now. And that's been probably the beauty of having a long career in football. And so my, my thing is I can manage Derby. I can go and mm. manage Chelsea and do it to a good level as well because I've had successes as well as when it hasn't gone so well. I mean, that's the modern day manager. So I think I probably crammed in a lot of work in four years and, and working at a high end level with players that will test you and question you because Champions League players question you. So it's just my path. The, um, I mean, that's it. So Champions League players questioning you. Mm. You don't ever assume that happens. I mean, I don't know a ton about what goes on in the foot in the room, but. Yeah, no, I think what, what, when I say that, I think in um, the modern day player particularly, I think in, in previous eras, it probably would have been more vocal and, you know, but now the modern day player have a good understanding of the game. A lot of them have been coached in academies very, very well to a high level. Uh, when they get to the top, they also when you when you you know are setting out tactics, they they will have questions for you, and and mm-hmm. I, and you have to buy into that because you know you, the reality is what you want is them to understand what you want, or sometimes they say something, you go, okay, we might change that, you know, or, or whatever it might be, 
And I think when you get to the to the top level in football, you have to understand that that's there. Now, there's a they have to understand you're the boss, and you have to make that very clear. Um, but at the same time, there will be lots of players that will challenge you. What, what do you mean by that, boss? Come to you. But what, what, what about if that happens? You know, and you get a lot more of that. And you, I remember reading Pep Guardiola once said that even if you don't know the answer, pretend yeah. that you know the answer. I was going to say that. Yeah. And you know, so you, there is a version of that because you know when you're getting things thrown at you, sometimes it's like, you know, football is an active game. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes in the modern day, we look at you know on Monday night football, you see after the event, you know, they should have done this, or people are, are imagining what. Um, you know, Pep Guardiola or Jurgen Klopp or fantastic coaches are doing, and it must be this amazing, complicated thing. For sure, they're amazing coaches, but it's an active game. So if you can give a good message, then the rest is down to the players at the same time. So you just have to prep them as well as you can, but they will they will challenge you. Mm. That, 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 that got me thinking about when I sat with um, Jamie Carragher and he was telling me about all the managers he had had on, um, above him when he was playing at Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And then hearing from all the United players, Nani and Ever and, and Gary and Rio about what Sir Alex was like. And and then reading through all of, all of the managers that you've worked under. I mean, there's so many of them from Jose to Angelotti, mm-hmm. um, so many of them. I mean, there was one period where, I mean, the managers were being sacked every six months, yeah. it feels like, at Chelsea. Yeah. Um, and the thing I garnered from all of them is that there is actually not a successful blueprint to being a successful manager. There's not like a blueprint. Mm-hmm. There's not a way to be a successful manager. No. Some of them are tacticians, some of them are man managers. Yeah. Is that accurate? It's very accurate. I, I agree with that. Um, and Chelsea is a bit, a bit of a unique example because in my time there, they changed manager a lot, as you say. And I don't think that's the most productive way to, to run a, a business in an idle way in terms of football, because in an idle way, you kind of go, we're trusting this manager, let's work with it. Here's the idea, we're going to go with it. And of course, it's the prerogative of the owners to change that. What we did have at the time was a fantastic unit within the dressing room of high talent, high personality that, that led the dressing room. So we had a great team and a great squad. And, and when I say that, we had a spine of players of John Terry, Myself, Peter Cech, Didier Drogba, Ashley Cole, I could go on. And there were personalities that sometimes would clash, but we knew our place. We knew we could rely on him. I knew that I would run for him and he'd run for me. And we also had high talent of a player that would, Didier Drogba would score in every final pretty much. So I think we kind of like bridged that gap of changing managers. Um, and so I think when you come back to the the question of, you know, great managers, I think sometimes it's, um, it's a case of compromising with what you're working with. You have to get the people skills right. And that's the first thing I learned as a manager of the difference from playing is that you have to deal with people. You've got to try and inspire every player within that group and inspire the collective. So every player will have a different motivation. It might be money for one. It might be, I want to be the best striker in the world. It might be, I want to be in front of him because I don't like him. Whatever that is, you try and tap into. And I think the greatest of managers, my opinion, and I played under, as you say, a lot, and I'm trying to be one, is that they give you something that you believe in that you can strive for and you all buy into. And it's and it's a, and sometimes it's a messy process. You know, you watch Man City lift that treble just now and you lift the Champions League. There will be so many things that we don't know behind the scenes. This player's unhappy, Pep had to do this, da, 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 all these things that come together and give you that amazing moment. And I had that as Chelsea's a player. And so for you to say, go on, tell me what a great manager is and me to go, here's an answer for you in one yeah. minute. It's like impossible to say. Man management, that's what all the United players said about Sir Alex. Mm. It's the only thing that they all completely agree on. They would say he was the best man manager yeah. and um, an inconsistent leader, which is an interesting concept. And what I mean by inconsistent leader is he would treat Gary in a different way yeah. to Nani, to Evra. Mm. And they all told me these stories. And Rio as well told me about when 
um, Sir Alex brought that bottle of whiskey to his ill grandfather's bedside. Mm-hmm. And Rio doesn't know how he knew the, the favorite brand of whiskey and how he knew his granddad was ill. Yeah. Gary told me he used to tap him on the shoulder and say, think about your fa- your grandfather's shrapnel, which is still in his shoulder when you go out there today. Mm. That kind of bespoke, tailored approach to leadership, which yeah. is seems to be Sir Alex Ferguson's um, yeah. highest accolade. Sure. And I, and I think that runs into the modern day that like we get very caught up in, in tactics and rightly so. The game's moved on from those days tactically, but those people, and, and you, you'll know yourself, you know, inspiring people, and as you say, to be bespoke and kind of individualize it and look within the group and have moments. Because, you know, if you ask me about my career, you go like, Frank, what do you remember out of those 20 years? Like, do you remember the meeting where Jose, you know, played you a bit higher up? I wouldn't. You say, do you remember the time that Jose said those words to you that inspired you? And it could be like one sentence. I go, yeah, I remember that. Do you know what I mean? Like things that stick with me that I remember that made me go, I'm going to, I'm going to run for this man. He's going to make me better. You know, and I had that. And I think so, what you just said there about Sir Alex Ferguson, I think the great managers have. You look at, and they have it in different styles, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, everyone will have a different style of that. And that's a huge part to their success, I think. What do you like as a manager? If you had to do like a self-assessment? I think you got, you got to ask somebody else that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I know, I try and be uh, close to the players, as I say, my open door thing. But at the same time, I think I, I try and find a balance. I, I think... The important thing for me was when I became a manager was to not expect anybody, any player to see it how I saw it or train how I trained or whatever, you know, for good or for bad. And you have to, that's, I think, a bit of a skill which, you know, Sir Alex probably had perfectly. So I try and be as close to the players. I try and learn all the time. I'm a coach. I want to coach on the pitch. I think my biggest pleasure is coaching and improving players and particularly young players. And I've had the you know, the, the fortune to work with some really good young players at Derby. I had Mason Mount, Harry Wilson, Fikayo Tamori, and then at Chelsea, obviously, Tammy Abraham, extra ones, and Everton, Anthony Gordon, etc. So I think they are the real sponges that are a real pleasure to work with. And I love that part of it, being able to speak to them. And, and you do find, and it's a reality, and I remember being an older player, you're a bit more cynical. When you're a younger player, you're like, they're, they're like a blank canvas. Mm. And you can, you know, push them and try and push them and that. So I'm probably quite intense with the younger players. Um, I try and be, as I say, inclusive in that, and I'm, I'm always trying to learn um, and, and try and just trying to be me. It's, it's a hard answer, that one. I think mm-hmm. you'd have to ask, you know, maybe a member of staff or a player, like pick the right player because you probably get different answers because when you work with, I worked at Chelsea recently with 30 players. I picked pick 11 for a game and like eight subs. And the, the subs, eight outfield subs, the subs don't really like you because they're not starting, let alone the other 10, you know? Yeah. So it's a really hard balance for the modern squad to to get there but you have to try and make it inclusive because if you're going to get anywhere you've got to go all together and that was one of the problems probably in Chelsea this season 30 players is it's, it's not possible to manage that well, on the other this is maybe this is an even more difficult question what are you trying to work on then what are the the areas of as a leader as a manager you're trying to work on because I can think of for myself I can think of a number of areas where I go do you know what that is still somewhere where I have a recurring when I reflect in hindsight I go mm. fuck I, I, sh- I need to get better here mm. what is that for you Quite a few things I would say because um, the overthinker thing comes in again and I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So, you know, I always want to try and improve, um, you know, my tactical and, and the personal touch and those things. But I think when I came away from Chelsea, I realised I needed to delegate time better. That was something I was certainly not great at. I've got, you, you have your staff for a reason. They're there to support you and at times they'll be better than you at certain things. So give them it, you know, and give them that. You obviously oversee that thing. And I probably spent a lot of time um trying to be 
across everything. Whereas really, I probably could have come back from that and saved my own energy. So I think I certainly try and improve that side. I did between Chelsea and Everton for sure to try and save that. I can um, uh, be pretty overreactive sometimes if I see things I don't like in terms of, and when I say that, it's always effort or standards. And I think I, I am, that's one of the things I'm biggest on is that, you know, if you are going to make a mistake in a game, I've got no problem with that. Um, if you are going to not run for your teammate, if you're not going to train through the week with an idea that when I train on Monday, that's got a direct relation to what Saturday is going to look like. If that feeling isn't there, then I probably can either get upset with a player or maybe kind of distance the player. And I think when you're working with a group, you have to be careful of that one because not every player has your mentality. So you have to either try and bring them up to the party or if not, then they're going to have to not be there if you're going to have success as far as I see it. And that sounds really harsh, but it's one of those things where you go, if you can work in a, in a, in a team and you're going to take it to exactly where you want it to be, out of that squad of 25, if you've got that kind of, I remember managers would say this, you have, you know, like there's your six or seven, you know we're going to get every day. They're going to train, they're going to come in, they're going to be so active every day. You're going to have the middle group or somewhere in the middle, you're going to have the ones that maybe, oh, I'm just coming to training, you know, or you know, I'm, not, I'm a bit sore today. You know, that, that sounds simplistic to say, but you have to try and work if you want to work in a forward direction and go, okay, those six are with me, right? You try and the garner samples. them. Those are the ones that can kind of pass the message. Those ones in the middle, okay, can we keep pushing and working between me and the staff to try and improve them? And then the ones that are there, come on, can we help them? Can they come with us? If not, you have to speak to the club and that's where a club has to be aligned to go, okay, if you want to go in that direction and we're with you, okay, we'll work that out and that becomes a recruitment or players leaving the club. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's a reality of how it has to be. And that's the reality of business as well. Um, uh, I've just finished writing this book and it talks about these three lines and basically says if everybody in, think about a person in your team and if everybody in the team represented their cultural values, mm. right? Which is what you're talking about with your six disciples there. Mm -hmm. If everybody represented the cultural values, would the bar, would the overall bar be raised or lowered? And you'll have some people who would imagine if everyone was like them, like a Frank, you know, a Frank yep. Lampard or a, a John Terry, how high that the cultural values mm -hmm. would be raised. And then you have other people where if everyone was like them, mm -hmm. you'd be relegated. Yeah. And and what to do with those three cohorts of bar raisers, maintainers, and right. bar lowerers. And that's kind of what I right. that's a good way of putting it. I mean, I and I think the I think the bar raisers can take some time to raise the bar. But the bar lowers can get you very quickly. Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of my experience because that kind of when that kind of that toxicity or whatever it is, yeah. you know, like this, oh, why are we doing this training? Why do we have to do it? or whatever that kind of negativity which can slip in can be really contagious. And then in a winning sport, and as much as we're talking here about great managers, winning is is everything, you know. And it's, that's obviously relative to if you're a Man City or an Everton. Like Everton will win kind of 35, 40 percent of games at best at the moment, and you know that. So you know that there are going to be. 65 or so percent of weeks where it's not that great that the bar lowers can go and they lower it quickly whereas you know if you can get the raisers to take control um then they that then i think generally you can kind of get there so it's a really important thing that that's probably one of the interesting things that as i say that the transition from player to manager trying to get that because if you whether you were one of the bar raisers or you're in the middle group or the lower group when you become a manager it doesn't matter what you were you've got to kind of get that mm. get the script of what it is and kind of just push um, so that that's something that I think well, I, I'm trying to improve on everything all the time and coming away sometimes gives you nice time to to have perspective and just kind of go oh, I'm going to put it in line a little bit and it looks a bit different to what I thought before that experience yeah, this is I mean I guess this is why some of the the greatest managers of all time they hold on to their Gary Neville's 
and yeah. they're, you know, they're disciples. Yeah. And I've I spoken to Gary about this. Gary said to me, in fact, when we were filming Dragon's Den recently, he said, for those last two years, Sir Alex kept me there because of the, my impact on the dressing room. Yeah. Not my impact on the pitch, but on the yeah. dressing room. I could keep, keep the standard high. Mm-hmm. Um, in the modern world, I was reading the stats, managers are getting fired quicker than ever. Sure. And it almost, it must be so difficult to establish authority when the player's aware um, that the manager's going to be the one to be taken out if things don't go well. Yeah. In business, it's not like that right. as a CEO because I own the company and I am the manager. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if there's if there's behavior underneath me that's toxic and contagious, sure. I can act. Yeah. The center of authority is with me. Yeah. Whereas it seems like in a club, the center of authority is really like the chairman, the owner. Yeah. Um, sometimes the manager manages, manages to get there. But yeah. in the modern world, we don't let managers last long enough to build that authority. No. And that's the tough world of it is. And I think, you know, you probably have to earn the right as a manager to get to a club, maybe, when you look at the perfect models right at the top. You know, Manchester City is a good one to talk about. Now, I work with the City Group. I had one year playing there. And I could see when I was there, they hadn't arrived at that point. But I could see with the stability from above and how it ran and the vision, it was like we're gonna get, they were going to get somewhere because they had a great structure. And it wasn't like it was going to get pulled and pushed and pulled for you know a small period of time. It was like, we're going to get there. And then they hired Pep. You know, they had a not a difficult first year, but the first year was kind of him finding his way. I need this, I need this. And then he's a fantastic coach and they have great players. But if you don't have that aligned thing, where, as you said, the most important person at the club in the modern day, in my opinion, is the owner. And it is the structure at the top because they really they set the tone. Maybe it's financially, uh, maybe it's with the sporting directors and recruitment because you will be as good as the players you recruit. A great manager, again, I don't want to sit here and drop names that said to me, it was when we finished at, um, my first season at Everton, we just stayed up, skin of our teeth. And he was like, rang me to say congratulations. And he went, Frank, don't rest. 80% of your work for next season will be done in the next month. So it was recruitment. Mm. So like 20% will be what you do next season. And now the 80% is like bringing the right players. So I, I think, you know, like that that alignment, as I, as I keep saying there, is something that, you know, if you can get, um, an, an owner and there are great owners and there are great sporting directors and recruitment and the manager and the manager is so you know critical to it but when you look at last season 13 managers left their club I think it's 13 out of 20 clubs and you're talking about you know Antonio Conte and you're talking mm. about Thomas Tuchel you know managers had huge successes it shows you that the landscape's changed to the point where the manager will be culpable and I think you have to come you have to be at peace with that but you have to try and get to the point very quickly where you have success. And that's tough because winning is, and the modern world of social media and reaction is like, get him out, <laughs> you know, mm. get the next one in. You know, sometimes maybe they're right. Maybe the manager is culpable, but other times there are there are many things. And to come back to your original point about players and those stalwarts and the, the Gary Nevilles and the James Milner at Liverpool in the last whatever years, you know, people on the outside, I think it's very easy to look at the superstars and Mo Salahs and that. I can guarantee you, and I know this firsthand from speaking to people, people like James Milner and Jordan Henderson have absolutely set the tone of that club for the last whatever years during great success. And if you don't have that kind of those drivers within that top six or eight, I think it's very hard to sustain success or get success. And again, back to my Chelsea days, we had that naturally. And we were actually quite diverse. So it was like 
John Terry was like the real captain, like heart on his sleeve. You could see it in him every day. I was probably like more quiet, but like a, a trainer and standers and myself and trying to hope that that would bring people with us. Didier was this sort of charismatic from the Ivory Coast and kind of brought in, you know, that section of the dressing room. And he took a petter check, spoke five languages. Ashley Cole was such a nice lad and this, you know, best left back the country's probably ever seen. So we had this amazing group. Mm. And like, if others aren't going to follow that, then very quickly it was like, you're not going to make it regardless of the manager change. It's like, you won't, you won't survive the dressing room. And that's kind of how it was. I, it reminded me of a quote that I've said on this podcast before, which is when the culture is strong, the new people become the culture. And when the culture is weak, the culture becomes the new people. Right. Because when you have those, that core of yeah. disciples, someone coming in, they'll, they'll stand out so much yeah. if they don't fit in with you, Didier, Frank, etc., yeah. that they'll instantly be expelled. Yeah. But when the culture is weak, someone will come in and they'll actually influence yeah. the dynamics. And that's when you're really, from my experience in business is when you're really, really screwed. No, that's interesting. Because I think in football as well, because it's so topical, it's, there's so much conversation around it that you know i managed uh, chelsea for seven weeks i think i did and i spoke a lot about standards and i was a bit am i saying standards too much i saw you say it in every post match yeah i know and it, it wasn't like I'm not trying to be clever and go i'm just gonna this is my line now standards but it was like it was very evident to me when i walked in um because you know having worked at chelsea as a, as a coach before and as a player I, I do know the standards i do know that and this is not a direct criticism of the players either, because when I look at the players' situations where they were and I understood how it had been a long year, I walked in on, with 10 games to go. They'd been there for the whole season and a lot of players were not playing. They were probably going to leave, which we're seeing now. Whether they were going to leave or the club wanted them to leave or they or they hadn't been playing with the previous managers. And I could see in training that it wasn't, the level wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to go and get a result, at, you know, whoever you might want to say, a, a, Brentford at home or let alone Real Madrid. It wasn't enough. And, and I can say this now because I said this to the players. And again, it's not an individual criticism of the players because I also, when you're trying to say you want to be a manager, you have to have a, a personal understanding of like human nature. If I'm a player that's not been playing for the last seven months and I think I'm leaving in four weeks time, I'm probably going to struggle to motivate that player. You know, I'm not, I haven't got a magic wand to motivate that player. So I think it was that probably the, my biggest learning out of Chelsea was when you talk about standards and culture. I think people go, nah, he talks about his standards. You know, what he talks about is culture. And I, you know, maybe I had to catch myself on and not say every interview. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was, if you don't have a building block of standards, then that winning culture that everyone goes, what's winning culture? You go, well, let me, I'll try and explain it to you, but it has to start with a basic standard. And which for me is always like trained to a level where you're going to push your teammate he's going to push you and then we're going to be as competitive as it can be. We don't have to win. Not every team can win. You know, this Manchester City pretty much win the league every year at the minute. So what's success for everybody else? For Brighton, it's coming sixth or whatever. For Newcastle, it's like, wow, Champions League. That's huge success. So everyone has a version, but my guess is those teams that have overperformed, outperformed, they've got something there which is a basic standard that they just build on. And, you know, to be fair to Chelsea, they're in a position now where that needs to be worked on again. It's a transitional time. Uh, that brings me to the quote you said after your Newcastle game, which was, the standards collectively have dropped. I can be honest now um, because it's your last game. I might not see them for some time anymore. But low standards are a symptom of something further upstream mm. that's happened. And we saw this at Manchester United. I'm a big Man United fan. I've seen a, a decade, five years of just like chaos where we've got these amazing players, mm. but one plus one equals 1. 1.5. Mm -hmm. We call it diseconomies of scale. Yeah. In great culture, one plus one equals three. Mm -hmm you know, where you can make great average players together play yeah. amazing, the, the football of their lives. The furthest upstream thing, where did the standards start to slip? What is the thing that happens in a club like Chelsea, in your experience, when you went back there that had caused that 
dropping of standards, which we now saw on the pitch with your sort of 10 games there? Well, I think um, when I was tongue in cheek, by the way, when I said I'm not going to see them again, yeah, because yeah. it was a bit like, as I say, I wouldn't say I hadn't said it to them. And I've said it a few times. But I, the, the position of it was that, and I think the biggest thing about the standards thing was the the size of the squad. It was the, the motivation of players that um, you're going to not play or you're out of the Champions League squad or these things like, it's it's like asking, you know, one of you, you I don't know, you, you maybe love doing this. It's just, this is like one of your great moments. You know, I want to yeah. sit and you want to speak to all these fantastic people that you speak to. Go, Thanks for your prep, Steve. And now, Peter Jones is going to do it. Cheers. Do you know what I mean? Like, how long are you going to go with that? Yeah. So, and I think in football, that's it's, that's a challenge with twenty or so players, which is the modern squad. But with with Chelsea, it's got very big to the point where this is how I felt. Where I can say, you know, I'm not criticizing that player for a, a drop in standards. I, I want to try and get something out of him because I had a short period. I want to try and get something out of him, so I would try. But then, when you actually look at it, you kind of go, yeah, but. He's had this for a long time where he's not playing. So he's not now being competitive with that player who is playing. So that player's pretty comfortable too because he's not pushing him. Yeah. So you kind of get this thing where you're like, you know, we probably took it for granted in, in some of my better days at Chelsea when we were successful of like this kind of thing that works. You know, it wasn't even a thing you said. You mm-hmm. know, you didn't have to sort of have a meeting every day and go, you know, one of the standards culture, you know, nice pie chart. And that's what that is. It was almost like, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. And at the minute, sometimes for whatever reason, there's a transition of maybe new ownership. You know, not everything was perfect before the new ownership. I was there before the new ownership as well. Like to find consistency as Chelsea would really want of winning Premier League titles and challenging has been a good few years now. So I, I think that getting the, the squad right, um, being able, probably a, a fresh voice as a manager coming in now, who's a, obviously a fantastic manager with a great record to come in and go, no, no. This is the way. And now the squad looks compact. You're going to compete with each other and try and create a great environment. I mean, everyone needs a great environment f- to have success. You know, you mm. cannot have a success without team spirit and togetherness. So when I got there, I could just see that, that the, 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 the spirit and the togetherness was, was not there. And it was nothing bad. You know, like it was not bad to go through the week. I could just see like you have to train elite to be elite. You, you have to. And that's not, you know, the modern day players play every few days sometimes. When I say that, it's not like show me how many sprints you can do every day. It's like, okay, if we're doing prep tomorrow, give me that intensity of of thought about what, what this is for you and let me see it in your face. But then at Chelsea, when you did that, you had to go, right, if I want to really focus on the, the 10 or 11 for tomorrow, that means I've got to have tw- like 18 players over there. And you kind of saw the body language as they walked off some of them. They, they were like, again, because they've been having it all season, some of them. So I, on a, on a human level, I completely understood and in the end, it was like, I came back here because obviously this was an, an opportunity to come to, to my club, you know, Chelsea, a club close to my heart. But as soon as I got in, I realized that probably I thought, you know what, 30 players, well, I can motivate in six, seven weeks because it's not like a long-term thing. I can come in and be fresh. Um, but in terms of what, when I came in, I've, I noticed very quickly that some players are probably thinking about the season's going to peter out and what's the future going to look like. And that was a, a difficult situation. I, it never crossed my mind that the size of the squad has such a big impact, but it makes perfect sense because you need that sort of healthy competition. And I believe your first team was, was it 32 players? Yeah. Which is more than you're allowed to register for the Premier League or Champions League. So you had yeah. this kind of surplus of... A lot of players. A few a few are always injured, probably, you know, so that comes down a bit, but it's a surplus and it's a surplus of... Um, 
the 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 makeup of the squad is international players generally. Because if there were a couple of young players, but when you try and build a squad, it would be like this is you know this is my core kind of fifteen or sixteen, and then you go and maybe these these two experienced players that might not need to play every week, and then we've got these kids that are waiting and they're like just happy to be there. They want to play. They're going to be training, and if you give them an opportunity, they'll be like. But when you have like international players in a big number, then of course you know you're, you're telling internationals you've got to stay at home. It's not. It's not easy, and you know, to to have the conversation every Friday with them and get them lined up coming in is also not easy for your own energy. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I, that's not easy. I don't care how, what kind of a, a man manager you are. Like it's like next, you're not playing. Okay, next, you're not playing. You know, like whatever, however you try and box that up to a player, eventually they'll probably go. I know I'm not playing. You know, like mm. stop telling me this shit. Do you know what I mean? So. I think you know that that was an interesting learning curve for me. Like an interim job is is what it is, um, and I kept getting asked. You know, people it was kind of frustrating me at times. Like, are you finding this so hard? Are you finding this so hard? I was like, you know what? I'm back home in a club that I love. You know, a fantastic training ground. I'm doing everything I can in this job to try and improve it. But there were, and I knew behind the scenes there were a lot of things. That, you know, myself and my staff, we we want to improve. We want to coach. We want to sort of when you when you lack those basics. And as I say, I I, I think. There's an understanding in the club that it has to change now. I think it has to, it has to change. Then, if you like those basics, then it, it's really hard to get where you want, want to get to. What, what, how does that happen though? So there's th- these 32 players, and then Chelsea spends more money than I think anyone's ever spent in a, in a window mm-hmm. in that sort of January window. You bring in all of these players on these long contracts, which I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. I think it was like eight-year contracts, mm-hmm. and they're all like class, amazing individual players. Um, is that a is that because the the new owner doesn't understand those dynamics of football? Because that's what it seemed like for me. I thought either this is a genius <laughs> or an idiot. Yeah, you know, um, I don't I don't want to criticize anyone like on a personal level, but as a fan looking and I go signing these players on eight year contracts, they're great players spending all this money. The impact on culture when you just throw stars yeah. in at such quantity. Yeah, it looked in, it looked like inexperience and um, naivety. I think that's um, that's understood now in terms of what it's meant with those thirty players, and I think you've seen that now. In that already, I think uh, six, seven, eight players have left. So I think, but the intentions are certainly good. I know that because I worked. The owners gave me an opportunity to go in there, and I had a good relationship with them. Their intentions to do a good job at Chelsea are amazing. They want to take the club and be the best. You know, they have great intentions. So now I think those younger players now with. Um, a new voice, a new manager, the, the squad coming tighter. I think they'll have a greater chance to show what they've got anyway. And they're talented players. And, you know, I remember being in Chelsea when Eden Hazard arrived. And pre-season, it was like, is this kid, he was a bit lazy looking, you know, and he was a bit kind of strolling around. Is this kid definitely? And then that first season, it was like, I oh, know he's really good. And then on the second and third season, like, no, this kid's one of the best players the Premier League's seen or whatever. Mm-hmm. Thierry Henry, Didier Drogba, like you can go through all these players who are who are like absolute legends. Now, if you're asking, you know, those five, six, seven players to come in and hit the ground running in a, in a difficult moment for the club. It's understandable. So I, I think as a Chelsea fan, you know, you look at it and kind of go, right, okay, that 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 is positive. There's talent there. Okay, it mm. needs to be worked with. Now I'm sure that you can see the squad's getting trimmed. And I, as I can say, you know, hand on heart, the intentions of the owners is absolutely, you know, they've spent that money because they want to do well. Now, if they're going to address the situation a bit, that's, that's their um, strategy going forward. But I do think, you know, you'll see players like Enzo Fernandez, Mudrick and these players, uh, Madoiki, young players, they're going to develop and they're going to be big players for the club. They, 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 you have to get the structure right and the strategy right going forward. 
What's the my thing is that adding like I don't know six or seven of these players all at once, pretty much halfway through the season, mm. um, in a in a squad that's already struggling to figure out who it is mm. under Graham Potter, um, it, it begs the question like who's doing the recruitment here? Because at other clubs, it's a much more strategic. It seems like a much more strategic and intentional and football driven approach to recruitment. Whereas mm. from what I saw at Chelsea, and I have actually spoken to some people at Chelsea mm. who are involved in recruitment, it seemed like chaos. Yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't there for that period. Right. So that was in, I, I got there in April and like, so January was the last window and obviously they spent last summer. But I think the, the, the change of ownership and then obviously some people moved on who were in the hierarchy of the club. Mm -hmm. And so there was changes. So there was a big change of structure. So I think you have to give um, some time and some leeway for mm -hmm. the process. And, I, and there, there certainly now are sporting directors and recruitment people in there having worked with them who are very talented, very hungry, you know, good to go. And I think now it will be um, up to them to, to take the club forward. They haven't signed bad players. I think mm -hmm. this maybe the, the, the the strategy of bringing them all in at that time, you know, looks a bit excitable at the minute as in terms of there's a lot of players for success, but I think probably there's a long game and I think there's a plan. And I think probably most huge clubs like Chelsea have had a version of what this period is. Manchester United, you mentioned there, Arsenal for quite a long time, Liverpool for periods, you know. So I, I think um, we have to give different, I, I think to, to overjudge now, when I think they have signed some good players mm -hmm. would be to to be overcritical. I think mm -hmm. at the moment, I think the the proof will be now how these players develop once now it feels a bit more settled going forward. Mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's all true. I think um what's the optimal way for player recruitment to happen in your opinion? Because I've you often hear about these stories of where, you know, an owner will take charge of a club and then they'll just decide who they want. Which yeah. is probably what I'd be like if I was an owner. I think <laughs> I would <laughs> I'd like football manager, I think I just buy who I who I want to buy, yeah. who I think looks good. Um, Manchester United suffered with that. It felt like our decisions were commercial decisions as right. opposed to footballing decisions. Then when Eric Ten Hag's come in, it feels a bit more like it's football mm. decisions. And what, in your opinion, and then I did speak to um, some people at Chelsea because I actually went to, I was invited to uh, sit with Richard Arnold and a couple of the Manchester United executives and when we played Chelsea at right. Old Trafford. Right. I was in the director's box. Okay. So I sat with the like sport, the new sporting director at Chelsea. Yeah. Um, and he said there's now two sporting directors, I yeah. believe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to talk to them. Um, but what is the about the optimal way for recruitment to happen, in your opinion? Well, I think um, with a with a you have to understand what you want the the philosophy and the identity of the club to be. So, for instance, I think Manchester City are quite firm in the the idea when they the, the Pep Guardiola has come in and the, the sporting directors have worked at Barcelona previously with him that this is how we want to play. This is a manager that's going to deliver that style. So here's how we recruit for that style. Chelsea's always been a bit different for me. The, the beautiful game, the, the tick attack, as you call it, Man City, has not been Chelsea style. It's been more of a winning machine in a different kind of way. You know, at, in, in my day, it was more of a powerful team that was probably we were good on the eye, but we were not that kind of, you know, pass, pass, pass. We were like powerful and effective. So I think you have to understand what you want to be. And, and once you get to that point, you probably, the first thing is to recruit a coach that, you know works within that mm -hmm. and then you know that's the kind of coach you want because this is one of be those conversations are an interview process and then once you get to that point i think the recruitment has to be joined up depending on how active the owner wants to be and i i, I respect and appreciate active owners it's their clubs their prerogative and then the sporting directors and the um manager 
and then obviously recruitment which brings all the data analysis into the picture and it has to be joined up and you has you have to be all very confident by the time you want to bring in a player that you're going yeah this is the player we want to bring in and there are always one or two or three options because you may not get target number one but i think you have to be able to recruit for the style that you want to be so the coach really has to have a big buy into that as well mm -hmm. but you as a coach in the modern day you understand the process i appreciate being aligned and having other people not just responsible for who you're bringing in but also like giving me something that i don't know i'm not there siphoning through the data uh, you know they have to show you that data and here's the reasons why the videos people that watch them and also the personality of the player because you're not not to say you're going to sign you know 10 james milners because their character is amazing and mm. their professionalism but you need to know that they're going to come in and the dressing room is going to they're going to be good for the dressing room mm -hmm. and they're going to help in terms of how you drive forward in terms of their personality one of the one of the key questions I'm, I want to answer, and I wanted to ask you today, is like, how would you have? What would have had to happen to avoid the situation where you had that unhealthy culture at Chelsea behind the scenes? In those when you came back in as the interim, mm. what would have? What could you have done to avoid that happening? Say you were in the, you know, if you were, if you could, in hindsight, have a wand and and correct things that were done. I get the first point, which was about smaller squad size. Mm. Um, what else? What else avoids that? Me scenario? from my from my first no, day in there. You're 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 a um, a genie, and you can <laughs> knowing what you know about the, the, what you inherited there. What would have had to be done previously to avoid you inheriting that? Smaller squad is the first thing that I got. Yeah, smaller squad. I mean, some things are just a bit, you know, like there there are, there are phases, you know, and I, I think Chelsea, um, they won the Champions League. I left. They won the Champions League. Like three or four months after I left. And at that point you kind of go, okay, where's the next move? And you kind of go, how was recruitment then? How, what things worked then? And maybe some players left during that period, maybe in terms of recruitment, you wanted to bring in maybe some people would be like the, the, the future in terms of the, I, I, when I was at Chelsea before, I wanted to bring in Declan Rice. I was like, this, this kid's going to be the, 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 the captain of Chelsea for the next, you know, 10 years. It didn't happen, but anyway. <laughs> But I think in terms of those things, it's hard for me to sit here and kind of dissect, you know, other people's work in that period in between, you know, like I would have maybe had an idea. It wasn't my idea because I'd already left the club. So maybe like when I came in, it was, it's not, it's, it's really hard for me to kind of dissect all those moves. You know, I, I came into what I came into. So, you know, that's, I think I'd probably be a little bit casual for me to kind of go, they should have done this, you know, like yeah, in, it, it's a hindsight yeah. one that's, yeah, it's kind of me wondering just because I've been a Man United fan and I've seen that happen and I saw obviously Sir Alex Ferguson leave mm. and then we just had these 10 years of what I describe as like confused chaos. Mm. And I'm trying to figure out almost like how in a Sir Alex Ferguson situation, how he we could have avoided that yeah. if at all possible. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big figure. Um, that's, that's difficult, isn't it? I agree. I don't know enough about Manchester United, but I do. I, I can understand why after Sir Alex leaving and also pivotal players will probably come into the end of their time at mm. the same time as him leaving to replace that and keep moving forward i mean you, know, you can there might have been mistakes and it's not my thing but i can understand why it feels like a long period for a club mm. the size of manchester united but it just shows you that i think that how cutthroat and fast moving this premier league is because if you come off the gas gas in terms of recruitment or whatever or you have a bad time climbing back up there like people think oh yeah you, you know you're chelsea you'll be in the champions league again next year or arsenal you'll be there like arsenal had to work a long time to come back and challenge for the league last year with mm. a lot of work. And, you know, people were criticizing our, like Mikel Arteta in the beginning and now, you know, 
they've worked together and stuck together and recruited really well and now they're ready to go so I mean it's not I don't think we should expect even you being a Manchester United fan or me having a Chelsea head on that oh, next year it's going to be great like it's mm. everyone else is moving forward too you mm. know so. when you get that call the interim call mm. you've just left Everton yeah um you're out of work um Graham Potter's been released from his responsibilities what's going through your head when they say we, we want you to come back in and, and take a, an interim manager role if I was a fly on the wall and when that phone call happens <laughs> um you nearly were yeah I was <laughs> we were gonna I do this yeah so I know yeah I mean I wasn't gonna tell the story but um, no I, I could tell it for you I was sure. coming to meet you and I rang you to say sorry I'm gonna become Chelsea manager that that yeah. meeting they you know people arrived at my house that afternoon so well just to be clear you didn't tell me that exactly you said I can't come and I can't tell you why then I, then I told you after <laughs> yeah right. then you told me okay. after but yeah. I'm not an idiot so yeah. <laughs> right, okay. I, I kind of inferred maybe that okay yeah. so anyway I mean no I, I think probably that the it's, it's normal that I consider everything and the, you know I probably considered it as in firstly it's a club very close to my heart as I said before um, a challenge of working and it was like we had two games against Real Madrid and we had the season to pan out it was a difficult running so I was, was fully aware of that um, and I don't know maybe like you know I, I do love a challenge if that challenge had been probably any other club other than Chelsea I probably would have said no I was very happy to be at home as such in that period I wasn't fighting to get a job at that period um, so it was probably a bit of head and heart um, I'm not sure what probably heart probably was a bit more substantial in this one than the head because I suppose if you look back again we're in that hindsight position but you know what were my what were my positive outcomes what were my negative ones the minute we didn't get through against Real Madrid which probably a lot of people would have bet on mm. um you're kind of into that zone of end of season and what are you playing for as a club like Chelsea and that's not the norm at Chelsea you should be playing for something and in the end we played for not not so much and of course, another reason my motivation come down. So I probably could have been a bit more ahead of the game in that. Whether that would have changed my mind, I don't have a regret about doing it. I went back there. If people from the outside want to, um, you know, uh, criticise or have a view on it from the outside for six or seven weeks' work, I've got no problem with that. I worked at Chelsea before. I worked at other clubs, and you know, it's another experience. It wasn't my most favourite experience in my footballing career. I won't lie, but it's an experience, and I have learned out of it. Not so, not so much, but I've, I've mentioned a few of the things. Not your favourite ex experience. Did you enjoy it, be honest? Um, I enjoyed the first few weeks. I felt like I was back at Cobham. I know so many people there. I mm. was like into the challenge. In the middle bit, I probably started to understand more that there's, there's a lack of, you know, what we've spoken about. Um, and then in the last week, we, we had Man City away, Manchester United away, and Newcastle at home as our running. And I was like okay, let's get through this week because I could see that the players were, were ready for the season to, to finish. You know, like it's, it's again, some of it I got on a human level. Does so, that not hurt you to some degree? Like, because you love um, this club so much and you're a winner. And if you see these players have checked out, you you know, it's not just they're checking out on you as a manager, but they're checking out on the club that you love. Yeah, as a general, as a general it didn't hurt me because having worked in football for a period, having been a player a long time, I've seen a lot of these instances and, I, and I'm not holding the players to my standard as such and and a lot of them I did know the backstory and the side stories I could get that they were moving on so you know if a player's moving on they might just not you know they might not be ready for those last few games they might have a bit of an issue or something and you know but there's no way that you you can accept that 
There's no, no way- but but is it uh, well? Put it this way: I, I don't want to I don't want to come here and, and shout too much because in a short period, um, it's hard for me to make too many statements. What I will say is that I think I understood I understood the role of being interim, and I understood that probably there was not much. There's there's certainly not much to gain for me saying oh, that was so bad or that was so bad now because when I look back, I'll probably just try and take my own thing out of it. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to go there. I didn't work long enough with the players to be there the one going, and I can't believe that happened at the end of the yeah, season. Yeah. You know, I walked into a position where some of them are a bit disenchanted or whatever. And I, I'm not going to tell that, that player that you shouldn't feel like this. Well, I'll try and drive them and drive mm. them amongst the group, but it's not for me to go because a lot of players will sit with a couple of players sat with me and said, listen, I'm going to be leaving in the summer. I'm finding it a bit difficult. I'm like, okay, I, I get that. I'm not going to change that in four weeks or whatever. So no. So what was the objective then in the in the four weeks when you're thinking about, when you realised that what was the sort of behind the scenes context, mm. do your objective shifts and shift slightly and go, okay, success here looks now looks like this for me? Yeah, in reality. And I didn't get that because it would be results, you know, because everyone would um, would judge me on results. So in terms of me, it would be success here would to, to have got better results in that period of time and come through there working at a high level club again. You know, it's it's extreme pressures. It's the media, it's the players, it's everything is trying to get results in games. And in some games we competed against Real Madrid, we competed against Manchester City, we competed, but you know, it, that wasn't to be, but that was my version of success. But you know, football is not that simple, you know. So many journalists ask you after if you you kind of like regret taking the job and your answer has always been like, no, because I've, I've learned mm-hmm. a lot. It's your, it's your club, it's, it's mm-hmm. Chelsea. Um, however, had you known the context and this is only something we can know in hindsight. Mm. We can't know it in foresight. If there was some magic genie that could have shown you the context, the behind the scenes, the dynamics, the 32 players, the culture, honestly, do you think you would have made a different decision? Because I think I would have. <laughs> yeah. But we don't have hindsight, obviously. We, it's, a, it's a magical thing that... Yeah, but I think probably, and, and, you, and you might think I'm wrong for saying this, but you, you would probably be taking some emotion out of it from my point. And also just how I am about the challenge of going into that. So if you say, all right, all the context is here, Frank, but you're not going to know what the results are yet. But here's all the context. You know, this player is disenchanted. I kind of knew that. I wasn't, this is how it's working. I'm like, I would be like, okay, this is what I've got to work with. Can I get results? And whether I was um, misguided in my own thoughts, I probably would have gone, yeah, I, I would do that. If I've got to be honest, I, it's too easy for me to say I wouldn't have done it for that. And and, and nobody gave me that, what you said. Mm, I mean, if yeah, you had that yeah, in an yeah. ideal world, I understand what you're saying. And again, that's why people might look at it. I don't, I generally don't have a problem with, you know, someone, how, I would possibly have a view from the outside on someone doing what I did. I don't think it's like changed the world. I think my, I played for 13 years at Chelsea. I, I coached them before in the Champions League for two years on the trot. Like, I, I don't think that whether people want to have a view on me, I don't worry about that. I went back for that challenge at that period. And, you know, we didn't get the results I wanted. I know a lot of the reasons why. I'll take the responsibility for my reasons why. And and that was it. You know, I, I don't have a big issue with it. It's like, because it's Chelsea, so topical. You mm. manage Chelsea, one of the biggest clubs in the world. And it's, it's one of the clubs that takes so much, especially in the Roman Abramovich's, so much interest because there's a turnover. You like lose one or two games and it's like, oh, what's happening here? So, you know, it's uh, I'm big enough and strong enough to handle that stuff so you would have having seen the context you would have backed yourself regardless i don't know regardless that sounds like i'm thinking i'm some superman that turned out not to be superman you know what i mean i I don't i don't i don't know you're asking me so hypothetical the season ends eventually Mm. um relief relieved in any way how do you feel Um, the the last as i said the last couple of weeks were quite tough Mm -hmm. because it was seeing out of season that's not 
for someone like me and for a club like Chelsea, like it's not a nice place to be. You know, I want to want to challenge the things, and that's that's not nice. So relief, probably, yeah, um, because I knew it would end, and, and it ended, and it wasn't that nice a time. Time to have holidays that I'd planned before, yeah, for sure. Um, and time to reflect, and I haven't got a huge amount of reflections on it. You know, a lot of people have, but I haven't. I've got more reflections on the year at Everton and the eighteen months at Chelsea before and Derby. This this period was so abstract in a way for me. That interim role was so different that I, I can't put it into a context of like oh, I wish I'd gone on a meeting on day one. If I'd have done a meeting about culture, I think that would it would have changed. Like I don't, <laughs> it wouldn't have changed. You know, if my tactics were slightly different in that game, I don't believe it would have changed. And me overthink, I would definitely think that yeah. if it was there. So, you know, I might be right or wrong, but so I don't, so relief and a feeling of like, I wish that had gone better, you know, like that's human nature. You know, I wanted it to be better because I'm a Chelsea person, you know, the Chelsea fans are fantastic with me. Mm. In this modern world, I'm not saying flick online, you'll find mm. everyone fantastic, but in terms of Stamford Bridge, I think there's an understanding at the moment that the club's not where it wants to be. And Chelsea fans are actually pretty good with that. There's some other clubs that would be, like we lost at home to Brentford 2-0 and like there'll be some clubs that would be fans that would be a bit more vocal. They were actually pretty good. I think, you know, they're, they're waiting to see something better this year. But they've also, Chelsea fans watched the team in the second division in the in the 80s and, and seen some struggles over the years. You know, the older fan. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that the success that, we, that they've enjoyed as a club for these 20 years or so, there's a real appreciation of it. And, you know, they don't want it to go on forever. But I do think they understand it's a difficult moment. I certainly felt that at Stamford mm -hmm. Bridge. Yeah, they were super. They were chanting your name even at Old Trafford when I was there. Yeah. Um, even though the, the score line wasn't great. And yeah. I actually do think that the Chelsea fans have understood that the new ownership, what you said, to their intentions are good. Yeah. And I think they can they can respect. They've bought really good players. There's a transitional moment, but I think they, they will appreciate that. Mm. Um, all of that stuff, all of that noise online, Christine, you, family, mm. you mentioned scrolling online. How does one keep those two worlds apart so that you can focus on your job without letting the outside world in too much. What is, have you got a strategy? What's your... I don't scroll too much. You don't scroll? No. Do you scroll at all? Very, very occasionally. Do you have the apps? The social networking apps and stuff? Uh, I have Instagram. Right, okay. Yeah. Which I'm not very... I have an Instagram page, but I'm not very active on. It's just not really me. Um, so I don't really scroll. I, I scroll for like nosiness, you know, what's right, everyone up right. to and, you know, a few friends and stuff or whatever. Um, but I don't actively do it because... Uh, I'd say I don't have the time to do it in terms of myself. Mm. It, it's just not something I, you know, I appreciate. Anyone else wants to show themselves, you know, sunbathing or in the gym, like that's their prerogative. I've got no problem with that. I just, it's for me, it's just not something I do. And then to, that's a nice line. I'm quite a boxer in my life. When I say that, I mean, I box off things. And when I want to box off, I don't want to hear that, um, the, the, you know, what some fan in so-and-so is going to say about me here and flick on the, the comments from a Chelsea post. I would just flick by that. I, I try and stay aware of, media because i think it's i do press conferences every four days you have to understand what the tone is of what maybe people are writing about you or you know the journalists how, um, how do you do how do how do you do that is, have you got like a someone that comes and briefs you yeah, in the morning yeah and they tell you what you need to know yeah uh okay yeah yes and i would i would tap into it a bit in the week whether i'm flicking on certain websites through the week and i wouldn't obviously go in as i said into the story into the comments i would kind of go into because so, you've got to be across things i would do that but i think it's very unhealthy to to scroll like I, I found that as a player, my playing career missed out the social media, came in towards the end. And I'm so thankful that it did. <laughs> yeah. We used to just have the newspapers given us like three out of 10 when we played for England and we got knocked out of the World Cup. Right. And that was hard, it was like looking at the paper to see what they gave you. And that was the version of that. And then the social media, so I, I don't envy the, the modern player 
as a manager, I think it's a bit different. I'm not in a place where I scroll through. I don't envy these younger players, men and women now, that are coming through and are sort of household names mm -hmm. and it's getting so much attention and so much of it's negative. I think it's incredible that we've got to that stage, that there's a, that amount of hate for, but it's so easy to be hateful. Um, and my, 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 I would try and say to the young players, don't look at it, but the minute the game finishes, they're flicking and it's, it's difficult. In your professional career, what, what has been, what do you kind of count down as the hardest moment in terms of scrutiny in your professional and like your playing career and your managerial career? What, is, what has been the, the hardest moment for you? Playing for England. Really? Yeah. 2006? The, uh... 2006 World Cup. I think I had, broke the record for shots at goal without scoring. <laughs> Classic. Wasn't there a disallowed one that should have gone in? That was in 2010. Oh, okay. So 2006, I think I had like 32 shots or something. I went in as England player of the year. I'd had a good year or two playing for England. So I'd got myself in there and was becoming, you know, a, you know, in a fiction of the team. And then I went there having scored some goals in the lead up, scoring at Chelsea and just had a tournament and it wouldn't go in for me. And then that played on my mind in games. I was like second guessing myself a little bit in the game. And probably off the back of that, there's a lot of criticism um, for myself, for some others. I remember us Chelsea boys getting a lot of criticism for the next six months every away game that we went to was like you let your country down the song how does that compare to being a manager in terms of criticism i found it harder as a player i don't know whether it's just maturity um because uh, as a player i don't know maybe it's in, in my 20s um i found it harder as a manager i think it's a, it's a different version of criticism and um i think as a player you i don't know why i, I found it harder if I'm a fly on the wall after a bad defeat, what do I see? You probably see a bit of a of a face, you know, and a, and a, and a going over the situation kind of face. Um, and it's different. I have certain games that they will affect you, and it might not be the one you'd expect. You know, the Manchester United you talked about there, we lost four one. Was it? And that one might be different because I kind of know where we're at. This, this, mm -hmm. this season's petering out. You know, we played some good stuff, blah, 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 whatever. And there might be another game that, you know, we, we lost and it really affected me because maybe think something I did or should have done or a substitution. So on those bad ones, you would see the face and, you know, like I would, you know, I kind of go into my show. I was not like I'm sulking in my bedroom. I'm a big, mm. big boy, you know. Um, but, you know, maybe have a glass of wine, stew on it don't get to bed till quite late and then you have to go again you know like it's that great sort of adage that you can people go you learn more from defeat you don't feel like that straight away but you have to be big enough to go over the game again what's the strategy now what's the you know the solution to that what do we do wrong and and that's what it is you can't get too down but we're all human when you were um 29 years old um one such moment occurred in your life that really i think from your own words tested you at a much deeper level you described yourself as being a zombie for a year after the passing of your mother. Mm -hmm. She died at 58 years old um, while you were playing and while you were playing at the very, very highest level. That for me struck, when I was reading through the way you described that moment in your life st struck me as a real sort of destabilizing moment in mm -hmm. terms of focus and all of those things. The question that I, um, the question that I had is how as a player, when you're playing at the highest level and you have something like that happen, how do you show up and, maintain those standards and be that's, Frank Lampard. That's probably what I meant when I said zombie because it became autopilot. And I think um, when you talk about mental health, that's the one time that I've been challenged to the extreme with it. And, you know, a lot of people go through this. And that was the really interesting thing I found because I have some perspective now these years later is that when it happens to you 
and it's unexpected. It's very sudden for me. You, you've never thought about that kind of thing happening before. The only, the only thing I'll say is this. I was, a, I was a mummy's boy, as I've said before. So I used to have these weird um, moments. I don't know whether you have them. I, I have them sometimes when I think about death and I kind of go, oh God, when you die, you, there's nothing. And I have those moments and it hits me in the stomach for about like four seconds. I'm driving along and I'm like, there's nothing. I'm like, there's absolutely nothing. And then you go, oh, don't worry, you've got to go to work, you know, and life carries on. And I used to have that with my mum. I don't know, it was probably reliance I had on her. She was like, I was so like mummy's boy, you know, growing mm -hmm. up. So I remember as I got a little bit older, like to my teens, and I was like, I imagine mum wasn't there for a moment. There was a panic for like 10 seconds. I remember them. And then because it, I was 29, as you say, and it was very sudden. I was at a, uh, in a hotel um, that we used to stay at pre-game. We were playing Wigan on the, in the evening at home. I got a call from my sister telling me that she'd fell ill. And then so I kind of went, okay, she's going to the hospital. Okay, that's a bit dangerous. So I went to sleep. Well, I didn't sleep. Supposedly would sleep. I was kind of laying there a bit like tossing and couldn't get off. I'm, I'm angsty. I've got another call. And then as we get on the bus to go to Stamford Bridge, it's like two, a mile. I get the call that, no, no, she's getting much worse. So I'm like, right, I'm in, I'm in Frank. I'm a sportsman. Go and do your job mode. And then I just kind of broke a bit on the coach. Kind of well, I, met, I felt myself go grey. And someone said to me, I said, you went grey. But I felt myself go like, oof. Anyway, got to the stadium, said to the manager, manager, this is what's happening. And he was like, go. So I was like, in my tracksuit, drive over to East London, mum's in hospital. So when I get there, mum's now in the, on, on, on the verge of going into intensive care. So she's got the stuff on and stuff. And I walk in, I'm in my tracksuit. And my mum had the, the oxygen mask on and she hadn't been speaking. She, so she's taken really ill in a day. And she lifted a, um, a mask and said to me, what are you doing here? So I'm in my Chelsea tracksuit. And I, and I didn't know what to say because I didn't want to go, you know, I'm here because this is a really bad situation. I went, I'm just here to see you, mum, you know, and then sort of put the mask back on. And then she was really, and then they kind of wheeled her in. She held my hand, which I'll never forget. And then she went in and was put into intensive care. So. That was one, a one week process of my mum in intensive care. So um, she started to get better. Um, and then um, a few of the family were kind of getting, not excited about it, but it was like, that's progress. You know, mum's out, she'd been on, on every machine possible. And I'm still having to think about going into work. I can't remember if I trained in that period. I can't remember that week, that's like a blur. I just remember being at home a lot, you know, in really, you know, in a, in a bad way. Um, and then we had Champions League games coming up against Liverpool. I played one away. I came back, mum was getting a bit better. And then we got the phone call that she'd passed away. She had a brain hemorrhage. So just as she was getting better, everyone was excited. She passed away there and then. So it was like the, the biggest devastation. I can't explain And As I say, years later, I realized that this happens to so many other people. And when you're a young man who hadn't really lost anyone, you don't have that real feeling of what that is. And I lost a person that was the closest person to me, you know, everything to me. And I'll never forget the feeling in my stomach. If I talk about it, I get it instantly again. Um, and um, I lost, you know, what was my best friend, the person that had given me all that, that kind of emotional stuff I'd spoken about, the warmth and the, the sudden feeling that someone's not going to be with you. Like it doesn't compare to anything when you're that close. Um, so, you know, in terms of work after that, probably some of it, if I look back, I probably go, maybe I should have just come out of it. Like life is bigger than that. But it was like my, probably a, a tiny coping mechanism for me. We played a game, a game against Liverpool, uh, the second leg, and I scored a penalty. We won the game. Now we're getting sent to the Champions League final. And I remember sitting in the dressing room afterwards and I had this almighty um, like sense of, of, of fatigue and, you know, body and mental fatigue. 
Uh, and I went home and sort of opened a beer and I couldn't even drink it. I went to bed and it was like, it's like everything came out of me then of like a week or two of full blast of of this pain, you know, it's, it's this complete pain. And then you lose your best friend and, and the person that, you know, I've still got a number in my phone and, and I've still got a couple of voice note things. We, we were never a big family for videos and stuff. And I, I wish we were. Um, the only thing I have is that my mum's sister is Sandra, Sandra Redknapp, Harry Redknapp's wife. And every time I speak to Sandra, I hear my mum. They look very similar. They sound very similar. And it's like in the first period, it was painful. Now it's kind of nice, you know, because that's a, a memory for me. But the, the you know, it's the, the, the feeling of grief, you know, I, I, it catches up on me now and again many years later. I think I probably had a year. Um, I was single. I was like probably drinking a little bit. I was playing fantastic football. I had a really good year of football. It was weird. Um, and then I met Christine. And thank God Christine came along around that time because I was a little bit, you know, not not right in that period so it was a it was a it was a really um obviously you know anybody who loses someone so close to them but she was so big in my life and was such a balance in my life and then you know that sudden thing is just terrible did, did, did you process that because it sounds like because you had football commitments back to back to mm. back that there wasn't really an opportunity yeah. to like sit and yeah well, I, I don't know i mean i've been through the experience and um the, that zombie thing I talk about is like I, I, I couldn't comprehend it. I felt empty and, and weak, but I had a, a job to do. And the job was so secondary. I, I certainly wasn't trying to be a hero. I just didn't know. What, if, if, I think if I'd have laid around all day, I would have really taken more of a hit. It was almost like getting up and going to work in that period and having something to aim for was just almost like, God, that's what I should do. And then I definitely took the hit later on for that. I definitely took a kind of deferred moments of grief and, and i talk about them like i say there it could be anything that would be um a couple of glasses of wine and something said at a dinner table uh, a moment of someone else and i feel bad about this talking about their mother or something you know and they're talking glowingly about their mother and 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 you kind of get hit you know um or another parents birthday like crazy things i've got no right to be upset about if you know what i mean but it just hits me and you kind of and i that sort of get on with it like hard nose get on with it son kind of feel feel which is stuck with me there was the one time i remember being absolutely broken and tested on that because i had no and i got some anger as well i, I remember used to i remember having road rage a couple of times literally the few days after i pulled out of my drive and it, it was a chelsea game so i wasn't playing it because of what happened but i was at home and i was driving to go and see my sister or something someone sort of drove across me and I got out of the car and I went for them and it was a Chelsea fan. He went, Frank, calm down. I was like, yeah, sorry. And I had these moments of anger in a period afterwards, which would just come out of me out of nowhere. And I wouldn't say that they've stuck with me from now, but it definitely changed me as a person. I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but it definitely made me have a different take on things and be a bit more, I don't know if ruthless is the word, but more, you know, that thing about kind of like cutting out some people that were in your life that you maybe would have got on with. I just kind of took a little bit more of a, direct approach in my life after that amongst some serious moments of grief within it you know I, it's uh it was, it was just, it's a tough time the, the the only benefit it sounds really warped i said this to someone the other day the only benefit is that now you know i, I don't have to go through that again that sounds really strange it was such a tough period for me that the only thing now and i see you know christine's family are there and other people around me have friends and family and i, I miss my mum so much like every day and as time goes by of course things balance out 
but I can't envisage ever going through that pain again about what I did because my mum was the only person being now now Christine is obviously that person in my life and my children of course but in terms of what she meant to me at that time the only thing that is like I can go that is so painful I, I really couldn't go through that again now that's it's a, it's a weird way of looking at it and I, I hope that doesn't sound strange it's just uh, processing it was too difficult and it's almost like uh, it was almost like a dream my, my, it was my life was never supposed to be like that in my head you know my mum was 58 and I felt like she was quite old and now I start doing the maths like I'm 44 you know like and you kind of go it wasn't old you know like I was 29 and mum felt a bit older at a point now it's like she should be mid-70s now and you know as I said the sudden nature of it meant you couldn't speak to her as well which was like as I've got older, I've realized that my mum would have known exactly how I felt about her. But at the time it was like, ugh, I want to say something more, you know, like, and couldn't. You want to say something more? Just like, thank you. Do you know what I mean? Like, thanks to, um, for being the balance, for being the one um, who, you know, in those tough moments when my dad was being harsh or something there, for being the one that would, when I was crying in the bath after a game and coming and knocking on the door, it's like for making me food. You know, things a great mother does, she just was that. You know, my mum was there to sort of, it might be sound old school now, but she was a hairdresser by trade who then became a housewife and a mother. And, you know, for everything that was gone on in my family life and lots of things have, she was always the one that was like the, the real stand-up one. I look back now, I, I understand it even more, that she had the ethics and the everything about her. And then I would love to just be able to say that. You know, it's like those, you know, an emotional song can get you going. It's like, can I speak to her one more time to say, here's a monologue for you, you know, like just to, to hear it. But I, I, with time, I definitely have got more strength in the fact that she knew that. And that's, that's it. When everyone I speak to says that you are that class act, you are the you're kind, you're empathetic and all of that. Now I know where that's come, that comes from. <laughs> no, no I, I don't know. Listen, I, I, I knew you were going to ask me this because I've seen you, you know, it, it wouldn't, you know, it's, mm. it's part of my story and I didn't want to cry. I'm surprised I haven't, um, but because I've cried probably enough at different times, um, but it's, um, it's almost something like it is strangely therapeutic to speak about it. And this is very public and that's not normally how I am. I'm very private. Our lives with Christian mm. are very private. It's how we like to live. And sometimes when those moments where I say the really grief stricken moments over a glass of wine, I kind of feel better after them because mm. that's probably what I held in when I was like hitting that penalty and, and people giving you huge plot. I remember when you scored that penalty when your mama just died as if it was like a hero moment. It wasn't, it was me just kind of going, I got to try and do this and, and, and do my job. And then, these moments now sometimes are quite therapeutic, if I'm honest, but it's, uh, you know, especially for other people that have gone through that and much worse, you know, a lot of worse things can happen in different ways. But until you feel that loss, you know, I, remember, I actually remember thinking when I lost mum, it was like a couple of my friends lost their parents when they were younger. And I remember then thinking, I've never really broached that subject with them. You know, a couple of my mm -hmm. friends are like 14 and lost, you know, I met at school like that age, who had already lost their parent or were in the process of, and I never really kind of went, and they, and they were like 14, I was 29. And I'd never even not thought about it, but you know, you kind of mm. go, oh, sorry, mate. And then you move on and you go, imagine what's, you know, all the things and I had to process it at 29, it's slightly different. But those things, so it, you know, life kicks you sometimes. And that was the biggest kick I think I'll, I've had till this point, you know, and hopefully um, for a long time. Do you talk about your emotions with Christine? Yeah, I, I do. I do. I think I'm quite good about that. She will say to me sometimes that I'm quite closed yeah. to that stuff. 
and then that kind of kicks me into talking about it because they're really good at that aren't they yeah my yeah. girlfriend's really good at that yeah annoyingly good at that. yeah no they're really good and i don't mind she sees me going into the zone kind of thing sometimes and she'll be like what's bothering you and i go oh well it's this you know it's probably something that's a bit irrelevant or something but is that the first answer you'll give because mine's usually nothing yeah <laughs> like, yeah no, i'll do no, that fine, no i definitely do that too it's <laughs> yeah. like, it's no one opens the box <laughs> no no it's true it's true but it's good i, I think because like, i definitely want to don't come across as this you know like i said like this get on with it thing it's certainly not me i look at myself as being you know the, the balance again of my mother was that one that she gave me that kind of empathy i, I associate all the empathy with my mother that I had because that's how she was was always with me so when I you know it's just I also have a mechanism that kind of keeps it there but it's definitely inside and you know maybe children also help with that because when you see your child and their smiles and their sort of innocent nature and how they are I think that also helps you become a little bit more emotional because you start to care about that more than pretty much anything else which is which has also been a, a you are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level and a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one of a kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. Beautiful thing. What's the future like for you, Frank? What do you um, think? I don't know. I'm, much, it's know, I'm it? very, it's hard to know. Uh, a lot of people could say to me oh you should you know get into punditry it's easy put your feet up do what you know that, that's and it's certainly I, I get my um enjoyment I get my my gets my blood flowing is working and being a coach so that's what I want to do and I'm in no immediate rush to do it the reality is off the back of Everton and Chelsea it's probably time for me to take my time anyway because of what opportunity there might be out there there may be no opportunity there may be something that comes up that I want to look at and say, does that work for me on all, on all purposes? Because I get your point with the Chelsea one. It's like, did you really need to take that? And the the jobs I've taken have been quite challenging. And a lot are. I'm not saying I'm going to be given this, like, here you go, this is going to be great. So I would try and choose well without sounding too picky because, you know, I will want to work. Um, and in the meantime, do the things that make me happy, which is being around my family, I like to travel. It's like the one thing that I um, really like to spend my money on. But you know, it's when I, when I travel, I want to go better than home. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. and if I don't go better than home, I'll stay at home. And I have, yeah. I've got a nice house, so you know. So I we we love that. So I'll you know use the time to travel a bit, be with the family and my children, spend more time. My elder daughters are doing A levels and GCSEs now, and be be around that. And that's nice. And sometimes you know I think that's good for me because I am so driven. It's like I feel like I should work. I should work. And actually, sometimes you go, actually, I'm 45 and I've done all right in my life. Maybe I don't need need to work. And that, and that's not a bad place to be. I'm fortunate. I don't I have gratitude for that. So at the moment, it's the gratitude of that. Enjoy it. And then try and work again. And what will be what will be your sort of, sort of decision-making framework when people call and they say, what about this job or what about this? What's the, how would you decide whether it's worth taking the... 
Well, it's hard to say, but from my experience, I would want to make sure I would want to have conversations to find out what the the job is. And I can't I can't sit here, feel this way, and talk to you about being aligned, and they need to feel the way that mm-hmm. you know, I'll be the coach, and they're going to do this and work together, and probably take another job where it doesn't feel aligned. You know, I I shouldn't um, do that. So I'd want to have a conversation and be like, what what can I do for you? I have to sell myself. Clearly, that's the point. But what can how will it work together and mm-hmm. maybe get something that feels a bit like and i don't mind i will work you know in, in in the uk anywhere i would travel if an opportunity came up i would certainly prioritize a bit of family to make sure that it's something that works for my family um something. ideally so i don't know i don't know about that one everyone seems to be going that they, they do they do i mean I, I would prefer to stay in the uk for sure um, and, and i don't mind I, I went and lived in everton for a year lived in derby for a year i miss my family a lot but you have to you know make those big decisions we're fortunate in ways but we'll um i'll see i'll see what comes up it's hard to call before it comes if we sit here in 10 years time in this chapters this next sort of 10 years this next decade has been a success what does that look like what would have had to have happened for it to have been a success this next decade well 55 year old frank and me 55 well i'm here so that's good at 55 i think my <laughs> you know obviously the, the family to be well and healthy you understand that more when you hit for me it was hitting probably 40 health and, and understanding maybe you check yourself more on those things and lifestyle and then um to be hopefully have managed and had success coaching you know that's that's what i want to do i can't see what that looks like but i would love to be able to to show myself consistently in a job um what i can do i haven't had that opportunity yet for whether that was me or whatever the circumstances have been but to do that so i'm very determined to do it. I'm, I'm good like that i'm determined and i like to work like anyone who knows me will know that like regardless of what my career has been if you put it in front of me i'll tackle it head on and then you know i'm um i'm always trying to improve so hopefully in 10 years i can show you that there's got to be a part of you that wants to go back to chelsea someday knowing if i know you hard the way i know you there's got to be a part of you inside you that's like you know one day I'll, i'll i'll go back it's funny you know like you talk about should you have taken that job i reckon if you'd have asked me that before going back i might have said no as in not like i don't want to go back to chelsea but i would have certainly seen myself no no like that's chapters done as a coach but now i've been back i would think about it even more and it's strange and i I think you know the the fact that the ownership has changed at chelsea and it's gone in a different direction i think it can be a really positive thing for the club i think people might not see that now but i think it really can um but obviously i have a lot to do to be Mm. part of that ever but like i i don't you have to make a clear decision. When we well, I played 13 years for Chelsea, I said I'd never play anywhere else. I ended up playing at Man City. Some people criticised me for that. It's fine. I didn't expect it, but Man City was an amazing experience. I went to New York City. It was an amazing experience. When you become a manager, you can't say, I'm going to be Chelsea manager. I'm going to be this. You have to take the journey because that's the, those are the rules for all of us. You know, you can be you know, a, a, a success for a moment at Everton. Everyone goes, well done, you stayed up, and then you and the next job. What is it? And I would, I, you know, I have respect for so many big clubs that, you know, there are certain clubs I wouldn't manage. I'm not going to declare them because that just sounds like <laughs> cheap. And But I think it's important. I, I respect my time at Chelsea as a player and what the club means to me. But I don't see it as the be one end all. But as I say, having been back there, it did relight a fire. I left Chelsea in COVID as a manager. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have any fans my, my last period. So I kind of walked out like a little bit through the back door um in a sense um and this time it felt different and that wasn't a great period but it is still a huge club for me so maybe 
I'm really excited to watch what happens next. Thank you. Um, you did a great job at Derby. Obviously, then you got um, Chelsea into the, the Champions League, I think finished fourth that season mm -hmm. um, under a transfer ban. Mm -hmm. And then you kept Everton up on the last day of the season, which again, most people had kind of counted Everton out. So obviously there was that interim period. I look, it's funny because I'm going to be honest. So I when when we were meant to have this podcast last mm -hmm. time, then you called me um, and said, listen, I can't come, can't tell you why. Um, and I kind of put two and two together and mm -hmm. figured it was the job. I looked at that and thought, like, I don't know, Chelsea are 11th or 12th at the moment. Mm. Like what's what's the worst that can happen really? Mm. Uh, what I didn't know is the, the back context. Mm. So if I was in your shoes, uh, in hindsight, and we don't have hindsight mm. in, in, in the moment, I would have probably, I would have not taken the job if I was in that situation. But in foresight, I definitely would have. Mm. 100%. Yeah. For all the reasons you said, if Manchester United called me now, I'd take the job. Yeah. <laughs> and I have no experience. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. So, yeah. but um, but I think what we're gonna—I'm really excited to see what we see next from you and your, your sort of managerial career because, I mean, what you, the experience you've had, warts and all, is worth a ton. Yeah, you know, yeah. at all different levels, all different phases, transitional relegation battles, all of that is worth more than a lot of successes are worth. Mm -hmm. And you've had that in a short window of time. So, right. really, really excited about your next chapter Thank whenever you. it comes. Thank you. Um, is there anything at all you would say to Chelsea fans that are watching this now that are, um. That would love to, you know, Chelsea fans will be listening to this because they want to get A, your opinion on what's just happened. Mm. But they probably want to get your opinion on like what you think the future looks like, I guess. And also, I think a lot of them do want to like check in on you because since you've left, we've not really heard from you in yeah. such context. Yeah, and I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed not speaking. It's been <laughs> nice. Um, no, I think for Chelsea fans, I would say that um, uh, in terms of what do I think is next, I, I listened to Pochettino spoke yesterday. It was his first press conference and he... He uh, he spoke very well, and he spoke about bringing a, a, a unity at the training ground and a family feel, and then winning, which is Chelsea DNA. So I think they've got a really good manager in charge, and I think the players will definitely develop with their, you know, as they as they develop naturally. They're good players, young players. There has to be some patience in putting that together, because I think that's that has to be clear. And the owners have a big intention, so I think as things settle. It may not be straight away, but I think that there's a really positive future for the club. And I was in it and it was tough, but you know, I know how quickly things can change if you get the strategy right. In terms of me, I'm absolutely fine. And I, I'd certainly appreciate the support I had from, as I say, majority, a lot of fans that would you know, contact me or be at Stamford Bridge. And for anybody that was on the other side of that, was like, why is Frank back in the job? I, I think they, maybe I've explained some of my part in it today and some of the challenges. I'll always take responsibility. I wouldn't walk back into that challenge without sort of saying this might not go right and what's my responsibility. So, but Chelsea is always a huge club. And as I say, I never went back to Chelsea until three days before I went and took the interim job manager and I went to, to Liverpool game and ended up having a conversation. And it was a difficult period for me for some reason. I, I, I left in COVID, as I say, and I moved on to Everton and it reignited that kind of feeling of being back at Stamford Bridge. I have to say, not that I lost it, it just reignited it. And, you know, so to Chelsea fans, I don't know, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. I appreciate their support. Even my playing career. It's nice when you finish playing because your playing career is there. And I can look back on it with a, lo a lot of pleasure for a lot of the good moments. When you're in it, it's like, what's next? And you're sort of like always challenging yourself. When you finish, you kind of go, yeah, you know, that was good. That was all right. There was a lot of good stuff. So there were good times. And I was very thankful to be part of a, of a great club. And we'll see. You gave Mason Mount his start. Yes, I think he's a great signing for your 
Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Thank you for that. He's <laughs> he's fantastic. Why is he leave, why is he leaving Chelsea? He's born and um, born and bred, isn't he? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a complicated one, and in the end, I think it's uh, he's got a year left on his contract. What I'll say about Mason is all the things I spoke about there. You talk about like modern players and how the game's changed. He is a throwback to the attitude and the commitment and the quality. The, the you know that was the, the beauty of working with Mason was that. He gave you so much in terms of his um, uh, effort every day. Anything you'd ask him to do, it was like, yeah, and he kind of got it. And I think any great player has to have that kind of intelligence and that desire about them. You know, like, what do you need me to do? Yeah, I've got it and I'll do it, I'll repeat it. And also quality. So in terms of what he'll bring to Manchester United, it won't just be what Mason brings. He will bring loads of talent, but he's just going to go and levels Really, he's it. a bar yeah, raiser. I, I think so. And, and and don't get me wrong, the bar raiser's already there with Bruno mm. Fernandes, Rashford. Casemiro, yeah. But he will absolutely, yeah, Casemiro. But he will absolutely fit in with it. If you're trying to build, which you're saying, you a, a group mentality of a team and, you know, players that are just going to give everything and have talent, which top team lead, he fits it. So I've seen some like, sort of alternative reactions to that. It's like, oh, yeah, Mason Mount's a good buy. Why would you pay that for him? Mason Mount is going to be a fantastic player there, in my opinion. It's really nice to know because actually I, I was a bit on the fence in, in regards of don't really know the character of the man, mm -hmm. but I have heard from inside Old Trafford that Eric Ten Hag, Eric Ten Hag is really ultra focused on exactly what you've said mm. above everything else. He's mm. focused on that like core mm. values, so Casemiro, um, Bruno, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to know that Mason is a yeah he is a bar raiser. Yeah, yeah. why is he leaving? Do you know? Um, Seeking a different challenge or is it? No, I don't think so. I think probably Mason would have envisaged two years ago that he'd stay at Chelsea for a lot of his career. I just think circumstances, his contract situation. Um, I know he's got a big love for Chelsea. Um, also in the modern day, you know, I think more than more than even in my day, players do move. And I, I don't think, you know, the challenge of moving, now it's come to that. For Mason personally, is a, is a good challenge for him. I would have liked to see him stay at Chelsea because I think he's he would have been central to it, but it didn't happen. We have a closing tradition on this podcast where the last guest leaves mm -hmm. a question for the next guest. And I have to say, this is the longest question that has ever been left for anyone else. <laughs> it's quite abstract right. as well. So we're both going to have to kind of figure this one out. But mm. the question is, you're going to be surprised by this. <laughs> when broken down to its roots or origin, the word enthusiasm begins with N, theos, which means with God. For people who have not identified something which they are truly passionate about pursuing... Can you suggest a way to cultivate that enthusiasm? <laughs> <laughs> that is oh, a goodness me. Um, so I think the real question here is just in this line here, which is when pe for people who haven't identified something which they are truly passionate about yeah. pursuing, how do they go about that? Wow. Um, thanks for that one. Yeah, it's a stitch <laughs> I don't know. Um, this is a good point, actually, because my daughter's now, my eldest daughter is going, leave, getting her A-level results this summer. It's talking about uni, but she doesn't really know what she wants to do. And I actually felt uh, not bad. I, I went to school, obviously, but my pathway, you know, looking back was like, fortunately, it's that. I didn't have to think about much else. And I, so I haven't got any big answers for it. And also, like, from a, a modern woman, you know, where, where is the pathway? What does she want to do? I asked her that question and she's not sure, which is completely understandable. So for me, I think... For her, if you're if, if flipping it there, it's maybe whether it's a passion or not, but my thing, and it probably goes back to my roots, is to the work ethic thing is what I say to her, is to get out there and um, get in the workplace and meet people. Because I think in the modern world, with my daughters are so engrossed in social media, 
they have a lot of answers about life, you know, <laughs> a lot of answers. And I'm like, okay, I don't agree with that one, but I'll let that one go. I don't agree with that. And then I start to feel like a dinosaur. But I do think that they kind of get caught up in that and all the answers are there. And I go, okay, what are you going to do then? And they go, I don't know. And you kind of go, okay, well, fine. You've got all this information. It's the modern world. But what are you going to do? Oh, go out and get a weekend job if you're going to go to uni. Go out and experience what the real world is like rather than this alternative world that you're slightly looking at. And then I think something might ignite it. Mm. So that that was my, and again, that's probably as deep as I could go because I don't care where it is. You could be in the coffee shops, you could be in the, this shop or that shop or whatever. But um, this is my daughter's story, obviously. Mm. So it was more about getting out and meeting people. And, and I guess probably, in, 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 to bring that question back to me, myself going out of my comfort zone and leaving Chelsea to go to Manchester City and then live in New York for two years ignited a million things in me and none of them were like big hobbies or something like that it was just like wow there's a different world a different culture people who approach things with positivity and energy that i've never seen in england and it changed my approach so maybe my answer would be come out of your comfort zone and do something which is different i was fortunate to do it. Mm. i worked there but i was living in probably what for me is possibly the best city in the world and it changed me as a person so maybe you know to to get the passion Mm. try something take yourself out of the comfort zone and it might just appear for you makes perfect sense and i think yeah exactly what i heard there is that often we when we're too within familiarity we're not going to get the inspiration mm. of what might yeah. be our passion if we're searching right. for it but going to a new york or um just getting out into the world and having experiences can lead us there yeah frank thank you so much for your time you. today and thank, thank you, you for doing this because i i, I want to say like you um you are a man of your word no. because we were going to do this last time and you could have easily not done it yeah. but you messaged me and said I want to get that back on because I said I would mm -hmm. um, and again that's just another example of you just being a class act the whole process of you cancelling last time because you got the Chelsea job and then coming back you've just been an absolute class act Thank you. um, you're a man where no one can question your your integrity and your principles and then on top of that I, I, I see a man who is um, incredibly keen to work and do well in whatever he applies himself to. And because of that, you've led this fantastic career, both as a professional football player and as a manager, which is, I think, you're just halfway through. Right. And there's this whole new season as you get up to, you know, you, you, 45 years time, you're going to be 90. And I'm, I'm so excited to watch that story unfold because of all the wisdom you've garnered in the last 45. So thank you for being an inspiration to me, for giving me so many great um, memories in football as an England player. Right. Less so as a Chelsea player because <laughs> you guys were really fucking good <laughs> through that that that's, that period. So, yeah. um, but it's a real honour to get to know you and um, thank you. yeah, thank you for all your wisdom. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And a decision that's helped me to transform my business is moving over to NetSuite, who I'm excited to say are a sponsor of this podcast. If you don't know already, NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. It's reduced IT costs because it lives in the cloud so you can access it from anywhere and the cost of managing and running multiple systems because it's in one unified business management suite. My team and I don't have to worry about tasks being manual and clunky 
and it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, so head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode.